This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, February the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's produced the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, successful debut for Maggie Connors playing for the National Senior Women's Hockey Team last night versus the United States in the rivalry series. That game was out in Saskatoon. Canadians were down one nothing, down 2-1, come back to win on an empty netter, 4-2. Maggie did not make the scorecard, but of course the pride with playing with the Maple Leaf on the front of the jersey, absolutely incredible way to go, Maggie. And it was on this date in uh, 1988 that female hockey made its debut at the Olympics. Of course, the games were played at the Echo Wing Arena in Nagano, Japan. So back in 1987 was the first Women's World Championships, but it was sort of an invitational tournament. Whoever had the money to make their way to Canada to play. Canada had two teams. One called Team Canada, one called Team Ontario, which featured only players from the province of Ontario. The United States came, Sweden, and actually the Sweden team was actually sponsored by uh, legend Borja Salming. Also, the Swiss came, Japanese, and the Netherlands. But on this date, in 1988, female hockey made its debut. There was three games on tap that day. The first game, Finland beat Sweden 6-0. First goal was counted by Petra Varkalio. They uh, beat Annika Ellen with a shot at 8.35 in the first period. Female hockey debuted in 1988 at the Olympics. Congratulations to the players, the coaches, the managers, the family of the members of the U13 AAA Rangers and Eastern Red Wings. They played in a pretty famous tournament called the Spud on Prince Edward Island this past weekend, and history was made. For the first time ever, two Newfoundland teams made their way to the final, and the Rangers ended up beating the Red Wings to take home the gold, so gold and silver for the Rangers and the Red Wings, respectively. Good stuff. All right, so yesterday, pretty big day down at Bishop Field School where Kids Eat Smart, partnering with Hebron and members of the Newfoundland Growlers, of course, try to raise money for the critically important school breakfast programs. There's going to be a Kids Eat Smart night at a Growlers game on Saturday, March the 2nd, and it's called Campaign for Breakfast, One Goal. I think is the, the label put on it. So $5 from every Growlers ticket sold for that game is going to give the kids eat smart. Yesterday, the Growlers made a $5,000 donation to the organization, who we all know does great work. 46,000 meals per day to school-aged children right across the province. That's increased by 68% since 2023. Okay, so that's good stuff. And a reminder... This country is the only country, what they call developed nation, certainly the only country in the G7 without a national school food program. It's been bandied about by the feds many times, but of course, it's never happened. Okay, some relief for the purchase of fuel today. Price of gasoline down by 4.5 cents. Diesel down by 3.3 cents. Furnace oil down by 3.28 cents. Stove and heating oil down 3.1 cents. There's a bit of a change, though, in Western Labrador. Churchill Falls went by, down by 2.75 cents. Propane up modestly at 0.4%, so a little bit of relief there. And this is really good news. An announcement yesterday from Transportation Minister John Abbott. I'm not necessarily a nervous driver, but I do have a bit of a sigh of relief when I'm on the divided highway versus in some of the real windy, hilly sections on the Trans-Canada where you know some of the notable corners or bends in the road, which make me somewhat nervous. 
at highway speed, and you know full well that's exactly where you're going to encounter a transport truck going in the other direction. So more money is going to be spent to add to a divided highway from Whitburn into the area of Grand Falls, Windsor. They say that it might even be gone during this construction season. There's some $306 million shared between the provincial and the federal government on this, and I think this is without question going to make it less anxious and safer for the motoring public. So there's long been consideration and plea from motorists and for first responders been talking about this for years and it looks like it's going to come to pass maybe even this year. Yesterday we talked about the two additional procurement programs that have been enhanced and we invited Minister Abbott to come on and talk about that so I think he's going to join us this morning so we'll be able to cover both of those issues. So more divided highway, yes please. All right, mention this when I'm speaking with Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey this morning. You know, my little hit I do on the morning show. And this one is about auto theft. Now, lots to this. So there's some 90,000 vehicles stolen each year in Canada, and they make their way overseas, whether it be to the Middle East or Africa, Europe, whatever the case may be. So that's a whopping big number. Here's the issue. There's some sort of summit in Ottawa today, so border officials, politicians, police, indus- industry representatives talking about this particular issue. Here's the problem. According to the February 2nd audit, Canadian Border Services re- reviewed the effectiveness of its criminal investigation program between the fiscal years of 2016-17 and 2020-2021. So, of course... If we're talking about cars making their way out of the country, then Canada's Border Service agents are the last stop for us to protect the Canadian motoring public, and insurance claims are well in excess of a billion dollars every year for stolen vehicles. Here's the issue. So the audit said no investigator working under the $35 million criminal investigations program had completed a full set of required courses. Less than half of them had completed the Canadian Border Service Agent's introductory course called the Foundation of Criminal Investigations. What? So the people who are charged with ensuring that these stolen vehicles don't make their way out of the country didn't even have the basic training to identify the issue, to conduct criminal investigations, put forward recommendations of charges. So this is nuts. So getting out in front of this summit, now the federal government has said they'll invest another $28 million for CBSA for training programs. How do things like this happen? (laughs) You know, you just have to scratch your head. The people who are at the border to ensure that criminal activity coming in is foiled and criminal activity, stolen vehicles in this case, leaving the country is also foiled. And as a matter of fact, we didn't even have the training in place to ensure they could do their level best to identify the problems. Absolutely unbelievable. And on that front, there was also a story in the news just a couple of days ago regarding auto theft and the manufacturer's responsibility. So there's been, according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada, so $1.2 billion in claims. Here's the problem. The insurers say that manufacturers should have identified the vulnerabilities in vehicle technology which thieves are exploiting. So apparently it's really quite easy for the thieves to hack into what they call the controller area network of vehicles, which enables the communication between all the electrical components. Also, something called a, a v- an engine uh, immobilizer, I think is the right phrase. So, before 2007, Transport Canada did not require re- regular vehicles to have engine immobilizers. So, when vehicles with the keyless and remote start technology were introduced, safety standards recommended by the UL Standards Engagement uh, were made mandatory. But here's the issue. 
Canadian Motor Vehicle Safety Standard 114 requires that all new vehicles manufactured or imported for sale in Canada with a gross vehicle weight rating of 4,536 kilograms or less must be equipped with a mobilization system. But the thieves are able to hack in and disable that particular feature. So it's one thing for us to keep up with technology, but if the manufacturers themselves understand the vulnerabilities, can enhance the protection of the cars that they sell us at a very dear price, how is that not happening? When we add to it things like these keyless fobs, recommendations coming from manufacturers and insurers, they say don't hang or put your keyless fob in just like the dish in the porch because apparently they can spoof or mimic your key fob by just using whatever piece of technology right at your own door. Consequently, they've got your key, even though it remains in the dish or on the hook in the porch, and out they go with your car. Add to it. We do know that manufacturers are working towards sensors inside the vehicle to identify if someone has been drinking. So whether it be with touch on the steering wheel or a little thumb pad on the dash and or sensors that can smell your breath and recognize blood alcohol content, that's got to be done too. Because we can talk about penalties for drunk driving until the cows come home, but people will, will continue to do it. Also, <laughs> I'm on a roll here with the vehicles. There's absolutely got to be a way for your phone to be immobilized so that you can't actually use it unless it's hands-free through a system in your vehicle. Maybe a button for 911 if and when there's an emergency, but the numbers of people driving around distracted by their cell phone is also an issue where you think the manufacturers would be on site to do everything possible to make it safer to drive for their vehicles. What do you think? Quick sip of coffee, one second. We're back. All right, let's stick with travel. Let's go to the airport side of it. So, good news for the folks at the Deer Lake Airport. They are thinking there'll be a busy year ahead, and that's according to CEO Tammy Priddle. WestJet coming back to Deer Lake Airport, which is excellent. Direct flights to Toronto and Calgary. That begins in May. There's also, of course, Sunwing returning flights to popular southern destinations in March. PAL remains active year-round. Air Canada's ramping up their capacity. Flights to Montreal on top of twice-daily routes to Halifax and Toronto. So, that's the good news for the Deer Lake Airport. And now on to what is... Something that people are quite cynical about, and understandably so, is what it's going to look like at Stephenville Airport. <laughs> it's been dragging on for quite a long time. So Carl Diamond says he basically doesn't pay attention to the nonsense. I'm not so sure it's nonsense to ask about lofty plans that were introduced manufacturing of drones. And he's talking about the possibility to see 25 to 30 flights an hour leaving the airport. He's not going to get into details because apparently timelines and specifics are still being discussed or negotiated. But I don't think this is nonsense. You know, people are hanging some hope on this particular issue. But that frequency of flights, let's just say any economic opportunities that come to that part of the province are executed. For instance, the wind project. Is that going to see that type of bump? I mean, the population is one thing. The frequency of flights for people choosing Stephenville to be their destination as they arrive in the province, that seems pretty lofty stuff. And then you add to it. Mayor Tom Rose was really quite bullish on talking about the tax opportunity for the town of Stephenville to the tune of some $250,000 per year. Now, of course, the Diamond Group has gone back to the town through the airport authority to say that they're offering a grant in lieu of taxes, which would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $50,000, maybe up to $100,000. So the mayor says that this is, you know, something normal. Big operations will ask for this type of tax break and offer that type of grant. 
But it was also the mayor who was really quite clear in saying that we are going to see some potential $250,000. So something has changed. Now, we did have a former councillor from Stephenville, Stephenville's town council, to schedule to join us. Whether or not that happens in the next couple of days, we'll see. But it'd be really nice to know what's going on behind the scenes out there. And Mr. Diamond, with all due respect, it's not nonsense. I mean, the people in the area talk about the possibility for hundreds of jobs, tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars in investment, which would be the key reason why some young families in particular would be willing and wanting to stay in that part of Newfoundland and Labrador. So it's not nonsense in my personal opinion, but you want to bring it forward? We can do it. Sticking with travel, this one Marine Atlantic. They've taken their new vessel, so it's a leased vessel, But the problem is, look, we've seen Marine Atlantic numbers really quite strong. Last year, a real nice rebound from pandemic-related numbers. But this new leased vessel has even fewer cabins than the Atlantic Vision, has 146 versus 150. The problem is that apparently two people have emailed me overnight to say they tried to book a cabin for passage. It's sold out for the entire summer. Now, I don't know if the smaller vessel with fewer cabins is something to do with docking facilities or what have you, as opposed to leasing a much larger vessel. Maybe that's exactly it, but we'll see if we can get Daryl Mercer from Marine Atlantic Command to talk about that if he is so inclined. All right, good news for the folks who are working out at the Harbor Grace shipyard. We know they've had run into some problems with uh, debt load that's become unmanageable as much as the owners did everything they could, including put some of their own money on the line to complete some of the projects. So Blaine Sullivan, he's been identified as the preferred bidder to take over ownership and maybe expand on the offering. Look, good on Mr. Sullivan. Apparently there was four bidders. And so PricewaterhouseCoopers were taking care of this particular transaction. It's going to be in front of the courts today to get final approval, and we think that's going to happen. It's no question the ability for us as a mariner-related province to have a shipyard in Harbor Grace. So good on Mr. Sullivan. PricewaterhouseCoopers did exactly what they were supposed to do. With the four bidders, they went back and said, please resubmit your bids. Two people bumped up their bid, went back to the bidders again, said, resubmit your bids. Mr. Sullivan was the only one who returned, and so consequently, he's the preferred bidder. So that's good news for everyone who's working out at that particular facility at this moment in time. So great news for that. That was owned by Harbor Grace Ocean Enterprises. Okay. This is a question because I don't know exactly what's happening, but... At the hospital or healthcare clinics and healthcare settings, now as of this past Monday, mandatory masks were required. The question is, is what does enforcement look like? Like who's been taxed with doing that? We asked the vet coffee from the registered nurses union yesterday if they've had any guidance on enforcement and they haven't. So are there like security guards on site? Is it just the first person that works for the facility that encounters someone without wearing a mask? So, and then what happens? So are you told to leave even though you have a scheduled appointment? So if you've been at the clinic and whether it happened to you or you've seen or you asked about how enforcement looks and works, I'd be curious to know. Because remember, back when masks were first introduced and it became a political hot potato, you know, even Dr. Fitzgerald was quick to say that, you know, please hesitate and don't engage in any rackets, whether it be in the shop or the grocery store or wherever, where someone might not be wearing a mask which I had absolutely zero inclination or want to get involved in any of that kind of stuff. 
but sometimes it happened. So in these healthcare settings, whether or not you're working for the Department of Health Community Services and you'd like to send me an email with some information regarding enforcement, I think it'd be helpful because people are asking me, and of course I don't know, because I'm not involved. Anyway, let's keep going. Here from Tony Wakem, Allied Health Professionals and others, concerned with the Premier's most recent tip with the recruitment team to the United Arab Emirates, and particularly into Dubai. Mr. Wakem's comments on it are something that I think is a very popular, or if not the consensus opinion. Yes, if we need to go and recruit, and we're told that there's been some 450 nurses recruited, 79 doctors recruited in the last year. Okay, good. The question being posed by Mr. Wakem is critically important. Do we know that if every student in Mons Med School or the School of Pharmacy or nurse practitioners or licensed practical nurses or social workers or anyone working inside of healthcare, have they been offered a job? Because we have shortages across the board. So good question. There's no real argument against doing it. On your first day in any of these schools, you should have direct point of contact with a healthcare recru recruiter and consistent and constant follow-up, keeping people in the loop of opportunities that are popping up even prior to their graduation. That would whet their appetite to know that there will be an opportunity for them upon graduation and in their final year, maybe active, whether it be through email threads or something digitally and or possibly uh, visits by recruitment teams to these schools, presentations on job opportunities, because fair enough, if we have to recruit across the country, which is a problem with the bidding war concept, or around the world, fair enough. But that point Mr. Wakeham is making really feels like the go-to solution. Well, it's not the entirety of the solution, but maybe it would be helpful to know, whether it be from the deputy minister responsible for recruitment and retention, has every single person in any healthcare-related school been offered a full-time job, given the fact that there are shortages in every single discipline? It'd be nice to know an answer to that question. Anyway, how are we doing on the phone this morning, David? I can't really see your hand, but I'm taking that as a, a wave. Looks like the NDP, apparently Jagmeet Singh, has frequent meetings with the Prime Minister to discuss the ongoing supply and confidence agreement between the two parties, which is the only reason why the Liberals have not faced a non-confidence vote with any peril or jeopardy attached. So, of course, the NDP, one of their big ones was National Dental Care. That's come to pass, even though there's plenty of questions surrounding it. And also, Universal Pharmacare. We're the, only geez, we're the only country in the developed world with universal publicly funded health care without universally publicly funded pharmacare. It comes with a big price tag. Mr. Singh, and I don't know how much teeth there is to this comment, but he came out of this most recent meeting, he called it a tough one. And they say there's going to be repercussions if the government misses the March 1st deadline to table pharmacare legislation. So there's been some rumbles about how that might look and work. And it would be very much reflective of how universal pharmacare rolled out across the country in the first place. So if there was coverage of some drugs to cost the federal government some $3.5 billion annually, it would start by covering essential medicines. If there was a more comprehensive list of drugs, it would cost some th uh, $15.3 billion annually. annually. But Canadians would save $5 billion on prescri prescription drug spending. It's exactly what happened with universal health care. So when it rolled out across the country, 1957, the federal government only covered hospital visits. Then the Canadians needed to, at the time, Canadians needed to pay to visit their doctor. Then it wasn't until 1972 that all the provinces and territories had universal public insurance for physicians' services. So you would think 
that given the way the Liberals have kind of dragged their feet on this particular issue, and I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent, and of course it's going to be extremely complicated to do it properly so that we don't interrupt employers' insurance coverage of some of your drugs and have to consider all the co-pays and whether or not it's going to be means-tested, we don't know. But you could probably safe bet that it will be some sort of staggered or laddered or phased-in uh, opportunity. But for Mr. Singh, and he's welcome to come on the show, what does repercussions mean? If there's not any legislation tabled on March the 1st, does that mean that that's the end of the Supply and Confidence Agreement? Because repercussions only come in one form here. You can't just go to the mics and the cameras and say, you're bad, and you, you know, betrayed our agreement or our deal. There's either a deal or there's not a deal. Anyway, that's a big one. We take it. We can take it on. I still had a few more I wanted to get to, but I'm right up against the 20 minute past the hour. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four this morning. Say good morning to the Liberal member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti. He's the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. That's John Abbott. Good morning, Minister Abbott. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Kylie, and how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you, sir. How about you? Good uh, good, and good to hear. So, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Let's talk about highways first, because I do also want to get to the procurement issue as well. So, inside the world of added uh, additional kilometers of divided highway, it sounds like a great idea to me. I am a little bit white-knuckle in certain parts of the province when we don't have a divided highway, but is there something beyond anecdotal evidence, you know, to feel safer on the road? It just stands to reason, but... Is there documentation or data out there about the frequency and severity of accidents on the divided highway versus these uh, one lane in each direction? Uh, we keep uh, very good uh, statistics on uh, traffic accidents, uh, including fatalities, on our highways, and that is a factor in our planning and design of any of our highways. Uh, so uh, the more uh, we can keep uh, highways divided, uh, the more safer they are, and uh, that was one of the factors uh, that we want and we did consider in looking at the two uh, two twinning projects that we're uh, that are under consideration from uh, extending from Whitburn uh, to hopefully as far as uh, Southern Harbor turnoff and then from uh, between Bishop Falls and Grand Falls, which there have been certainly a number of accidents in both areas in even in just uh, uh, this uh, past year. Can you share any of that data just for curiosity's sake? No, I don't have uh, I don't have that data in front of me, but the, our uh, highway design folks would uh, would have that data. Okay, and I'll see if they can afford some along. Because just to put numbers for context, just when we talk about spending three hundred six million dollars, which of course is a cost share between the province and the federal government, what's the split? It's going to be uh, 50-50. Okay, 50-50. In addition to paying to actually make the highway twinned further, as you just described, do we understand what that might mean for additional manpower for ice management and snow clearing and, you know, all those things, not only with the clearing of the roads and the, dealing with the ice, but also for repairs and whatnot? How does that been factored in, say, in the five-year window? We will, again, as we expand our infrastructure, obviously we have to incorporate uh, that th those uh, costs in, into that. Uh, we won't be, obviously we, in this case, we were not 
extending the, I call it the mileage per se, uh, though we'll be double laning on either side, uh, we'll have uh, ex extra runs obviously uh, for that. Uh, but we're building and, excuse me, we are purchasing new and more modern equipment that will offset some of the uh, costs that we already have now. So it'll uh, be more efficient. The other thing that we are considering here uh, is a P3 model where whoever builds uh, this, uh, these two pieces of uh, highway infrastructure will also design, uh, build, uh, finance, and maintain. So we are uh, considering that. Uh, we're just trying to finalize that analysis right now, but that's sort of where, uh, where, where we're leading. And the other jurisdictions have done that qu quite successfully. And some have failed miserably, like, for instance, in the province of Ontario with that approach to P3 and roadwork. So does that mean that the consideration is now a taxpayer-funded contract with a private operator, or are we talking about the possibility for tolls? Uh, we're not considering tolls, so uh, it would be as we've done with our, our, our building of uh, the Corner Brick Hospital and the long-term uh, nursing homes out in central Newfoundland and the West Coast, and as we've done uh, now for the mental health and addictions facility here in St. John's. So that model is working for us here in the province. We're spending, uh, the, I think, the right uh, energy and resources to make sure we do this right, uh, and uh, we're seeing the benefits of that. Uh, the Cornerbrook Hospital, as an example, was built uh, on time in budget, and uh, that's something we haven't seen in some of our other projects in the in the recent past. What does more modern or larger equipment mean? You know, in my mind's eye, I just picture something with a bigger blade, so that we don't need to have three plows going up the road to clear two lanes. So, what does that? Well, that, mean? that would be an example in terms of how the uh, salt and sand gets distributed on the road, uh, the, uh, the computer systems and that can tie in so that we can monitor what is happening in real time. So all of that helps uh, manage, particularly when an individual operator is on the road, uh, he or she knows and that they have the support uh, behind them as well. Let's go to Labrador and road work for a second. So there's been lots of evaluation about the possibility to expand the roads into the north coast of Labrador. Is there anything in the works? The, there's a pre-feasibility study that is just getting clued up uh, right now. Uh, I haven't seen the final results of that yet, uh, but when I do, I will be sharing that and having discussions with the Nunatsvit government uh, and the federal government as to what would be next steps. Uh, there's no doubt if that a project was to proceed uh, it would be as a significant cost and it would certainly require the federal government to be a, a significant player in that. Uh, I was talking to some of the our highway contractors just recently and just conceptually what they thought uh, of that project. They said it's doable but it's going to be a massive undertaking. Uh, it's going to be obviously a multi-year commitment and it's going to take uh, would take some some time and millions and millions of dollars to uh, to construct. Let's move on to the procurement announcement. So sticking with the Labor Newfoundland and Labrador pro first procurement strategy, can you help elaborate on what some of these phrases mean? So increasing open call thresholds, meaning exactly what? So in terms of the Newfoundland Labrador first procurement strategy, the focus is on how we can enhance uh, local suppliers to uh, be able to bid and uh, be successful in uh, providing more uh, goods and services to uh, to the government. So right now, and, uh, and other agencies, right now we have a 10% discount. Uh, that's gotten us so far. Uh, what we now want to do is what other elements uh, we can uh, we can uh, add. So one is the thresholds themselves, so uh, there will be a larger priced uh, tenders that can go out, uh, which can be dedicated to uh, local suppliers. 
we're going to look at the bid bonds. So if you're bidding on several uh, uh, contracts at the one time, do you have to submit multiple uh, uh, bonds? So every, any, anything and everything we can do to make it easier uh, and more accessible for local suppliers. And uh, we've been working on that now for uh, for quite a while. And I uh, was very fortunate to be able to uh, to announce that uh, earlier the week. We talked to one of the companies uh, that uh, has benefited under the re- recent policy, and he's, he and they think that this is a, a, a direction that we can should be going. How is that going to work between the government and these companies that you're trying to bring into the fold so they have the possibility of the enhanced possibility of getting a government contract? So are we talking about in-person information sessions or information packets that will be sent out? How do you envision that working? Uh, yes, uh, all of that will certainly now we'll be going out and talking now in a, a more uh, wholesome and fuller way with the with the business community and the Board of Trade and uh, others uh, so that their members uh, are, know what the details are here. Uh, one concept is reverse trade show, which would basically say, look, as uh, as uh, a government, these are the kinds of uh, services, goods and services we're going to need over the next number of years, and invite the companies in, and then we can, we can learn what they can actually uh, uh, deliver for us, and then we can structure our tenders to uh, to the to the local needs, both and the local supply, and sometimes we uh, as uh, procure, uh, buying goods and services. Uh, we don't think uh, further than what we may see, quote-unquote, in the catalog, as opposed to say, well, can that product actually be made here in the province? How will we structure a tender so that they could uh, bid and meet our our needs? And uh, we have done a bit of that in the past. Right now, we want to expand that uh, so that we'll be much more successful. Obviously, that means uh, more companies, uh, more employment, and uh, more uh, tax revenues for, for government at the end of the day. Before we dig into the sustainable procurement strategy, both strategies include a ma- the mandate of an allowance of 10% for provincial suppliers for all procurements. Okay, what constitutes a local supplier? Because we do know that there's plenty of companies that have headquarters elsewhere, maybe some satellite offices here. So how do we define who is a local company? Well, the, reg- the regulations, are, uh, as we have them today, say any, any company that is actually doing business here in the province. So they would have, be a registered company here in the province, uh, and that whether they have a, uh, a mainland connection, shall we say, or they're just to- uh, solely local, uh, both would be considered uh, local companies. Because at the end of the day, uh, they're employing uh, you know, local citizens uh, to do job, and they they pay taxes. So we haven't uh, narrowed it down to just somebody who's only here in the province, but that that they do have a physical presence and a registered business here in the province. So it can't be an Ontario company that simply registers as a business in this province, has a post office box at Station A. They need physical human resources working in the well, province, and that's what we aim uh, aim to to do for sure. Yes. Okay, uh, just a couple quick ones inside of the sustainable procurement strategy. So can you give us an example, you know, because we all know how the tenders work, basically, you know, service, quality, reputation, technical consideration, uh, price, of course. Give us an example of what you talk about when we hope to, hope to achieve broader social, environmental, and economic goals. Can you just pick one example that might fit into that envelope? Well, 
for example, right now, uh, when we are looking at the, the construction of the mental health and addictions uh, facility here in St. John's, uh, within those uh, proposals and tenders, uh, there is a requirement for uh, uh, labor plans that, uh, in hi- uh, that will hire uh, women, that will hire persons with disabilities. So that's an example. So we want to build that out into more of our, our contracts. Uh, we want to talk about the life cycle. So it's one thing to buy an item that uh, in, in the first instance looks cheaper uh, uh, to buy than, than, than something else. But when you look at the life cycle of that maintenance and what have you, uh, maybe the higher priced item uh, is cheaper in the long term. So we're trying to factor all of those those things in. Uh, we're looking at the, how we can uh, incorporate and use social enterprise uh, more effectively so that, uh, that the money stays within the community but also stays uh, in the uh, in the sector that uh, we're trying to support in other uh, in other ways whether it's uh, clothing housing and the, and the like so there's lots of uh, opportunities here uh, other jurisdictions have done bits and pieces of this we have now tried to pull all this together in one comprehensive approach uh, bounce back if you don't mind to the divided highway issue and this, these are coming directly from listeners and I guess residents of these areas the suggestion is from this listener is the highway from Clarenville uh, past come by chance needs to be divided too. the number amount of accidents on the stretch over the years and driving by around shift change, there's a lot of traffic. Any consideration of where would be the next expansion of twin highways? Well, uh, that's I know the area quite well, drive it fairly often, and so again, we would be looking at uh, traffic counts, uh, uh, accident counts, those kinds of things, and then uh, wh- whatever section would rate up there, uh, we would look at that in the future, but right now we have no plans other than the uh, two sections I, I mentioned earlier. Just one more time, can you clarify exactly what those sections are? I want to jot it down because inevitably I'll be asked. It would be from uh, Whitburn West to, to uh, roughly 40 kilometers, so that should get us to the Southern Harbor turnoff, and then it's the stretch of highway between Bishop Falls and Grand Falls. Right. Bishop's Falls, Grand Falls. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Well, thank you, and uh, best to all your listeners. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's John Abbott. He's the Liberal member for St. John's East. Kitty Vitti, the Minister responsible for transportation and infrastructure, and, of course, also the Minister responsible for public procurement agency. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. David, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Uh... It's Dave. I'm calling from the Northern Peninsula. Okay. Uh, a little bit concerned about uh, last Sunday. We were in Cornerbrook for the, the children's uh, hockey tournament. And uh, I dropped into uh, Walmart and anyway, to make the short, the story a little bit short, there was a lady there to the cash. She was with her, her granddaughter. And when she 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 paid her stuff at the cash and stuff like that, and then when she went to turn around, she went wapo on the floor. Now I don't know if she hooked in something or or she just tripped or I don't know what happened, but she fell because I was kind of back onto her. And uh, what 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 amazes me is that this lady was on the floor. And you know nobody from customer service was coming to to, to you know to see if she was okay, whatever. I turned around when I noticed it. I asked her was she okay, because I do have first aid and stuff. And I asked her to squeeze my hand and stuff like that to see if she would have, because it almost seemed like she would have. Well, it was more embarrassing than anything. 
to fall, you know what I mean. But, uh, you know, I yelled out to the uh, people there at the uh, uh, front desk for customer service. I said, well, this lady's going to need uh, some help, to, you know, to, to bring their stuff out to her or car or whatever, but, you know, they were looking around like, uh, you know, uh, okay, well, what's going on or stuff like that. And anyway, finally someone did uh, walk out behind her because I told him, I said, walk behind her as she go into the car. And then when she, I noticed when I came out behind her, that her, she was in the car at that time. And I don't know if it was her husband or her son or what was on the side of her and uh, uh, I I asked him, is she okay? But you know, she looked like she was shaken up pretty good. You know what I mean? I do. And what get me? What, what gets me is this, Patty. I mean, uh, right in front of the, the, the customer service and stuff, you, you think that someone would take the incentive? That, you know, first of all, not let her get up right away. You know what I mean? Try to assess the, 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 if there was any damages and stuff like that. And maybe I'm making it a little bit too much of a thing, but uh, it seems to me that it should be a little bit more professionalism. I I don't know how they approach issues regarding potential liabilities and what have you in that type of setting, but if. I'm a retailer, and someone's in any type of medical distress and requires some assistance in the store or getting to their vehicle or with their packages or parcels, you'd think that would be not only part of customer service, but just the right thing to do. So you're telling me that nobody did anything? Well, no. I, one of the young fellows that is dear, you know, the greeters, whatever, he, I told him, I said, you you should walk out behind this lady. Look, she's on her way to the car, and she had a cart, and plus her little granddaughter was there with her. I suppose it was her granddaughter. I don't know. It was a little youngster there with her. And uh, and uh, he looked at me, you know, almost stating that, well, what should I do this? Because I was going to do it, but uh, I still had to pay my stuff there at the, at the cash, you understand? So did she get where she was going safe? Well, she got to the car, and I was quite okay when I went out through the door. Noticed that she was in her SUV, and then I talked to her, to the driver, and I said, "You should keep an eye on her. She might have struck her head when she fell because everything she had in to one of the bags went flying across the floor. You know, went rolling down. So I thought it was a little bit disturbing, to tell the truth." Yeah, it, it sounds like it, and I don't know who should be ultimately responsible for that, but, you know, I would think that most customers customers would be willing to help, you know, just simply, you know, uh, let her hold your arm as you get to the vehicle and put the packages in the back of the SUV for, or whatever the case may be. So it sounds like a strange set of circumstances where I guess everyone's looking around waiting for someone else to do it. That's exactly it, and it seems to me it's uh, it's like everything else in this world, Patty. I mean, it, it looks around to see if somebody is going to get out and do something. I mean, come on. I mean, someone just fell just fell on the floor, and we all know those floors are all concrete. Uh, you, you know, she she must have must have had a bang somewhere, right? Yep. So, that, so anyway, I did my thing. I did what I could. Me and my wife, we, we made sure to check and see if she was in the car, first of all, or got to the car. I believe the young fellow went out behind her. 
But uh, in, in cases like this, you know, you don't know if a person could strike her head and, 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 and whatever, and everything would be fine right now in mean, a couple hours of time. Who knows? This could be a concussion. Who knows? Yeah, and nobody on site would be willing or pardon me, able to make that type of diagnosis. But insurance, she, you know, was even asked, do you need some uh, additional help? Do you need me to get you to your vehicle? Should I call the ambulance? Because you never know. Well, People, because well, after this, I asked her all the three of those questions. And then I think being embarrassed and stuff, you know, and she, she was embarrassed like this, you know. Sure. And then, then I looked towards customer service. I said, "Look, one of you guys is going to have to walk to walk out through the door with this lady, because, or to get to her car, or whatever, or call somebody, or whatever." But it was nice to know that when we when we went through the door, she was already sitting in the car, like I said. And I asked her, the man, I said, "Is she, is she okay?" I said, "She took a she took a bad fall, you know what I mean?" So I, I, hopefully he took care of her, you know what I mean. I appreciate the time and the the call this morning, David. I hope she's doing okay. Well, I, I hope so too, boy. And and and, and yeah, uh, for, for anyone listening, you know, if you see somebody fall on side of you or behind you or whatever, whatever, I mean, my God in heaven, you got to help this person off, no matter who it is. You know what I mean? I hear you. Thanks for the call, David. Stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. And, you know, when we worry about uh, liabilities and whatnot, and there was some conversation last week about uh, giving CPR, and as long as you don't do it in any sort of malicious fashion to hurt versus to help, then you're going to be fine. In the world of general first aid, here's the basics. If someone's unconscious, you have implied consent to offer them first aid. If there's conscious implied consent, what you have to do is tell them what you're going to do before you do it. And if they say no, then you do not have consent, and so you cannot provide any assistance regarding first aid. But if you simply tell them what they're going to do and they don't say no, then you can offer some help, whether it be to put some pressure on a cot or, in last week's conversation, CPR. So there's some of the worries that people have about, you know, what happens if and when I touch someone and all of a sudden I find myself in trouble. Well, all I was trying to do was help. Let's take a break. When we come back, Craig's talking about recruiting nurses locally. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go line number one. Craig, you are on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you today? Doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Uh, just a couple of thoughts and a couple of, uh, I guess, initiatives that the government could look at or whatnot with respect to recruiting nurses and stuff like that. Like the premier's just been over across overseas, over in Europe and whatnot, trying to recruit nurses and stuff like that. Yep. And then they're trying, when they get them here, they probably got a house and stuff like this, okay? But try and think outside the parameters and stuff like that. Like I thought about it, well, maybe they should look at creating some sort of a pilot project with the various organizations, the government departments that's involved, go to the high schools that, and when the children or the kids that are in grade 11 and 12 and see who would like to be nurses. Okay, and 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 say these are the courses you had to do. You become a nurse for uh, when you get out. You become a nurse. We'll pay for fifty percent or so much of your education. But when you're done, you got to give us five years. Do that for a ten or a twelve year period. You would probably have a hundred to one hundred and twenty nurses coming out of uh, locally, all over Newfoundland, and you mean you would probably eliminate the gap that's there. 
you start it right at an early age. I mean, it's, to me, it's not rocket science. And the other thing is, like, I me, mean, boy, if you pay for so much of their education, tell them, I mean, you've got to give us five years of service after you're done. That way you would eliminate them, some of the nurses that are leaving to go to other provinces to get uh, to collect better salaries and stuff like that. Yeah, the service contracts have long been discussed, and I see exactly where you're going with it because any incentive to stay, whether it be contractually or financially, just makes sense because if we're traveling to recruit, it comes with additional costs, no doubt about that. There are things like career days in high schools where you'll have a, a bunch of different organizations, including healthcare representatives. The last time I went to one, there was actually someone from the government talking about a variety of different careers. I don't think it was healthcare specifically focused, but all these types of options to work for the province you know even if we just did something as fundamental as if you're in the nursing school today and they i think they added 25 seats just recently to the nursing school the day the first day you sit in a desk in that school should be the first day that you're contacted by a recruiter working for the health services and then a constant follow-up so that they are always shown and told what are opportunities available the jobs full-time casual whatever the case may be so that they know that there's something at the end of the road upon graduation that there's a job waiting for them even if it's something as simple as that and if that doesn't seem to be working to the extent where you think your idea would work then let's expand on it so there's lots of things and i i don't know it'd be helpful to have uh, it's dr megan megan hayes i'm pretty sure is the new deputy minister for recruitment i'd love to have her on the program because there's so much of these types of conversations we need to have how active are we in recruiting people who are in the schools here right off the bat well patty, well, patty a lot of it i see like i mean they are burnt out, and that's why you can't get nurses to go in. And some nurses will go in and work overtime and double shifts and triple shifts. But if you eliminate that by having those career fairs and getting 100 people come out of the system every year that are going to give us five years to the province for the next 10 or 15 years, you're probably going to eliminate that. You I mean, God love the nurses. I mean, they're burnt out and stuff like that. And I wouldn't want, you mean, to have a nurse probably after working five or six shifts had to come in and administer something to me like I mean to me that's not right on two sides of the coin yeah, well, I mean, there's an interesting story that speaks exactly to your point this morning. This lady, her name is Vicki Jones. She started operating a business called Vic the Vampire. It's a mobile clinic uh, doing uh, blood work, urine samples, injections for those with transportation issues or what have you. She's extremely busy. And why did she enter this? She said she started the clinic after feeling jaded by the nursing world. So there's tons of examples where the work-life balance has not been met, the frustration with working alongside a travel nurse with different rates of pay, the inability to get days off, working extremely long. Long shifts, of course people are leaving that profession. You know, it's just as plain as nose on your face is going to burn plenty of people out. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the politicians, I mean, and I'm not naming anybody in in general, they need to reevaluate and look at this in a different in a different spectrum, right? Well, because the current approach is obviously not working the way we need it to work. Uh, I appreciate the time, Craig. Thanks for the call. All right, then. Have a good day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, again, now maybe we're hearing exaggerations of the lack of attention to recruiting locally. I'm sure there's some done. I do know the friend of the family has a uh, a daughter in nursing school at this moment in time. She's set to graduate sometime soon, and she has been told there's a job for her, but it was at long-term care, and that was the only option offered. You know, and then you talk about the number of nurses that are simply working as a casual status. 
the, the casual status allows them to have a bit more flexibility, right? The province dangled pretty significant money in front of the casual nurses to move on to the permanent list. I think it was $3,000 cash on the barrel head, and very few casual nurses took it on. So if I have the option, and the casual nurses are getting as many hours as they want, so if I have the option with not being required to take one shift or another because I'm on the casual list, that's also an attractive option. So getting this right, I think, is probably a little bit more complicated than we all understand, including myself. But the approach currently being taken is doesn't seem to be working the way we need it to work. Let's go to line four. Dominic, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Morning I'm the second time caller. Welcome to the show. And I want to talk about my roof, the shingles on my roof and the contractor. Okay. I know I'm not allowed to mention his name, but in Canada, we're supposed to have freedom of speech. But we don't have it here. How so? Because I'm not allowed to mention his name or his, or his contract name. Well, that's, that's also for your protection, Dominic. I know. So and no one's telling you you don't have freedom of speech. I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense here if you're simply on talking about a leaky roof issue. So just tell me what's happening first. Let's start with that. Well, I had my roof done in 2020. And ever since that, it just leak, leak, leak. Okay. Now, he came up a couple of times, and the last time he was up, he changed out some shingles, was in January of 2023. And he changed out some shingles. He had a blowtorch, but he said, I can't do no more because it's too cold. Now, one other thing. If I went down and done some, uh, destroyed some of his equipment, he could take me to jail. But he can come and destroy my house and put my life upside down, and that's okay. Now, the other day in that rain, I had to get up on the roof because I thought shingles came up. So the wife, she got a job to get around. She got to get a hip replacement. She came out and hold the ladder on, so I got up. But it just steady leaked the whole time. So is this like a fly-by-night, one-man operation? We hire a crew where we can get a job, or is this an established roofing company? What kind of outfit are we talking about here? It's a, it's a, it's a, a company. A big, a big company. And so since January's replacement last year of a few shingles, and then he stopped because he said it was too cold, nothing since? No. And I got up the other day in the attic, and everything was soaked. Now, I'm afraid that uh, the jib rack on the fireplace is going to get wet, and then the fireplace is going to start falling down. And if that happens, and you're standing around there, you're going to get, to get hurt. Sure. When's the last time you spoke with the roofing company? Well, I was back there in uh, January 2023. And no contact since? No. Well, they won't take your call? Well, he told me he's walking away from it. Now, he said that uh, the chimney was leaking. So he wasn't going to do anything else until the chimney was fixed. So I put a new tap on the chimney, and it's still leaking. Just for the purposes of explanation, the issue regarding mentioning company names is like, for instance, if the roofing company says it's not their issue because you got a leak in the chimney, then after you take them to the mat or bring, uh, call them out to the woodshed, then all of a sudden you might have created a problem for yourself. It's not that I care. Because if someone's betraying their customers and not living up to expectations, then that's a problem because it would be for me as well. But if you say something that's not true, then you can get yourself in trouble. 
And that's uh, this is the advice given to us by lawyers. It's not about protecting me because I don't care. I haven't said anything about a, one company or another. And when I do, I have to be sure 100% that what I'm saying I can verify and back up. So when we don't know, you know, we haven't heard from the roofing company. So adding their name to it really does put you at risk. Not me, not Dave, not the company. We're kind of protected, although we could face some jeopardy. But it's really about protecting you because if you offer something that's not true, next thing you know, you're going to get a letter in the mail from their lawyer and that's the worst outcome possible so we're not trying to protect anybody other than you in these types of calls but i'll tell you what we can do is if do you use email by chance dominic pardon do you use email no i don't if someone that you know or someone belonged to you wants to send me an email with exactly where you are and the name of the company i have no problem and i've done this countless times over the years i will say i'm calling on behalf of dominic he'd like to know exactly why and i'd like to know exactly why you're unable to get back and repair his roof i do this all the time so if someone belongs to you wants to send me that note i'll follow up no problem no i don't want to do uh, sound like all the roofers is bad okay there are some good roofers out there. Of course there are. But, like you say, there's a bad apple in every barrel, and I got the barrel full of rotten apples. Well, I'm sorry to do. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that because that's an absolute nuisance. Because it's not like it's cheap to get the roof reshingled re- re- in the first place. So, Dom, I can make that offer to you. Uh, sorry, Dominic, I'll make that offer to you. If someone sends me some specifics, company, and where exactly you are in the province, I don't mind making a call on your behalf. No problem. Yeah, okay, thanks, Patty. Good I luck. Hope some, I hope some people can call you and give me some uh, information what to do. Uh, absolutely. If anyone has some suggestion as how they can help, we can connect you, no problem. All right, thanks for taking my call, Patty. My pleasure. You take good care. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Look, there's circumstances in the past where... It doesn't have to be on this show, but shows like this is when on the public airwaves you say something that might be half true or exaggerated or completely uh, complete falsehoods, you can get yourself in some pretty hot water pretty quickly, especially when we're talking about companies that might have some swagger and some cash and lawyers. And next thing you know, the problem that was costing you a thousand bucks might be costing you $15,000. You know what I'm getting at, because there are plenty of examples of that out there. So it's not me protecting me or Dave protecting himself or trying to protect me. It's really rules in place to protect you. It's as simple as that. You know, people, are, if they're willing and wanting, like if there's a difference between a private sector company and companies doing business with the government, because that's publicly documented issues. And we know that there's been many companies that have been named by name. When we talk about government relations, that's a different kettle of fish. And that's things that have been explained to us by folks in the legal profession. Let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, Aaron has a comment about, you know, ideas to get, recruit, retain nurses. He says uh, the suggestion offered was not a good one. He says, offer them the best pay in the country. I get where you're going. But, of course, at some point, our offer the best pay in the country is upped by Alberta. Then it's upped by Ontario. Then it's uh, beat out by Quebec. At some point, the bidding war is going to ruin all of us. Let's go ahead and take a break for the uh, news. When we come back, lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Stephanie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay. How about you? Uh, I'm in a pickle. <laughs> Uh, so, just a backstory. I went on maternity leave January of last year, and I'm currently employed with the Canada Revenue Agency. I'm a taxpayer services agent. So, when I went on maternity leave, I received CRA maternity top-up allowance. 
um, just to top up from what I would get from Service Canada. Okay. And I received a call to come back to work December 9th. Excuse me. I verbally accepted over the phone that I would be back. My contract would start January 15th. So I drove from St. Anthony to St. John's, pick up my equipment, came on back and started working. About a week later, I went on my pay stub, found that I wasn't receiving any money. So they took- you were working as a contractor? Yes, I'm currently on a contract again now. Okay. And my contract is until May 10th of this year. Um, now, I could get extended, could get laid off, I'm not sure yet. But uh, when I checked my pay stub online, it showed that all my money was sent to a debt with the Crown. So I called my compensation. They said, well, you owe $15,000 in overpayment of maternity parental top-up allowance. And I didn't understand exactly why at first, but then the agent that helped me set that up, I emailed her, received an email back three days later, stating that if I verbally accepted, on, or if I accepted, sorry, on the 8th of December, this would not have happened. I never received a call until the 9th of December. What does the 8th versus the 9th have to do with anything? Uh, because the 8th would be at the 90-day cutoff. Okay. So I got a call on the 9th, which was 91 days since my end of contract last year. You can appeal. Here's the tricky business with uh, outstanding tax uh, taxes owed to CRA. So if I'm just, say, working for a company and I'm on the payroll, they can garnish up to 50% of my wages. But if you're self-employed, work as a contractor, uh, a pensioner, or source of other sources of funding, like the example that you offered, CRA can indeed, by law, garnish up to 100% of your income, which sounds pretty harsh, but you can appeal it. I've already tried that route. I've been trying to get in contact with everyone internally for the past week and a half. I filed three hardship, uh, financial hardship forms sent to my director. Um, so far, I've not received any information at all on if they can lower the amount. I'm currently a single mom of three little boys, risk at losing my home, my car, everything. Yikes. Um, I've already called social assistance to see if there was any way that they could help. They advised me to call Goody Hutchings. I called her, both offices, left voicemails, haven't received a call back. Um, so I wanted to try and figure something out internally before I went outside. So that's where I am right now. I've been speaking with compensation multiple times in the past week and a half. My team leader, which is my boss, and our manager have been having meetings about this. They can't figure anything out exactly what to do about this. I don't know if you would have any advice on where I could go next because I'm petrified for my little boy. I bet you are, and I'm I'm sorry that this is happening. And that's the trick with the self-employed or a contractor as opposed to 50% of garnished wages. 100% is really quite something. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should do something like become insolvent or go bankrupt. I'm not saying that at all, but I would suggest that it's probably well worth your time to call a bankruptcy or insolvency company to talk about what potential advice and consolidation you can do to make a pitch to CRA to maybe see the garnish move back to 50 from 100. So I'm again, I'm not saying you should just declare bankruptcy and walk away from this, but I think some advice to consolidate some debt might be a, a pitch package that CRA will accept. So that's what I would do. I already done that as well because the exact same day I received the letter they sent me, which they dated it back to January 5th, I received that um, last Monday, not Monday past, but the Monday before. 
that was the exact same day that I received my discharge from my bankruptcy that I filed back in April. So I've already been in contact with my trustee, and so far I've heard no response. So I, I really don't know exactly what to do now. I'm not really sure what to do now either because, you know, I was hoping that the suggestion would be of some benefit because I do know people have gone down that path and they've had some luck because debt consolidation is what people need to see when we've got creditors knocking at our door. That includes CRA in this case. So the Goody Hutchings call is probably the right place because social assistance here is not going to do anything on a federal-related matter, in this case taxes. So maybe her office will have some suggestions for you. I doubt it because dealing with CRA is difficult. Uh, I'll just use that particular word to describe it. So if anyone lets me know, and I'll give it some thought during this upcoming break about where you might be able to go. I do know someone in the bankruptcy world, and I'll zip them off a quick note if they see if they have any actual advice for you. And if they do, do you mind if I share your number? Oh, definitely. Okay. I'm I'm up for anything right now because I haven't received any money. My ER cut off December 28th. I haven't received any money since then, so I've been I've been in a pickle. So, let me craft an email for my pal who works in that field, and if he says I can help or I have some suggestions, I'll simply give him your number because I have it right here. Awesome! I appreciate that so much. Let um, me see what I can figure one, out. Definitely. One other thing, if you have a couple seconds. Sure. Um, where this is not actual taxes, it is money from CRA. Yeah, it's a top up issue. Yep. Yeah, so even if I went and worked somewhere else, they would still garnish everything I have. I understand. Maybe this will be helpful. If you can put some very quick bullet points in the form of an email and zip it to me, I will copy and paste it with my own request, a couple of questions that I'll have for him. So if you do that, I'll incorporate that in my email. Okay, perfect. And where would I find your email to? It's just openline at vocm.com. Awesome. Okay. Let me see what I can figure out. Perfect. I appreciate all this help that you might be able to provide. Yeah, and of course, like I tell people uh, quite publicly and honestly, I'm not saying that I can get anything done here, but I will send it off this question to someone who I know is working in exactly that industry. So I'll do as much as that. If he comes back and says, there's not much I can do, then that might be the end of the road for me unless I can come up with another idea or someone listening to the program can come up with a better idea. I'll try to incorporate all good ideas to see if we can get you some help. I appreciate that. So, Any help is appreciated right now. Yeah, so send me that email, Stephanie. We'll get the ball rolling. Perfect. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take good care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's a tricky piece of business because, you know, on the standard payroll, then there's the maximum of 50% of wages can be garnished. But if you are a contractor uh, or self-employed, that is the availability of garnish up to 100%. So boy oh boy let's go ahead and take a break uh, when we come back we're going to say good morning to the pc member for Terranova. he's a dep- uh, the deputy opposition house leader and he's the critic for energy industry and technology i'm pretty sure last lloyd parrot don't go away welcome back to the show let us go to line number four and say good morning to the pc member for Terranova. he's the deputy opposition house leader and the critic for energy industry and technology that's lloyd parrot lloyd you're on the air Morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. How about you? Very well, thanks. Very Good. Well. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the new uh, procurement policy, Newfoundland First policy that the government put out. But the first thing I want to say, I, I've got to go back on something that uh, 
Liberal Minister just said uh, about the feasibility study for Northern Labrador. I would suggest that he gets off his chair, walks down the hall, talks to the Deputy Minister and asks him for a copy of that feasibility study. Government received it in early January. That's not speculation. And if they can't find it, they can give me a call and I can tell them exactly who it was sent to. It's unbelievable for him to get on the radio and say that that feasibility study has not been handed into government. It has been. I know that for a fact. Well, I didn't. And if I had, I would have said it. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, let's go to this uh, Newfoundland First policy. I, I just want to go back to 2019, uh, certainly during the election and during the election in 2021. Uh, in our blue book, we were very clear on a Newfoundland First policy. Uh, what's really sad about this policy, and listen, I applaud the efforts that are being made, but they fall extremely short, extremely short in, in many ways, not just from a procurement standpoint, but we've got to start looking at the men and women in this province and putting them to work. Certainly when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, our apprentices, uh, people at disadvantaged population, you know, I, I don't know how government can build government buildings uh, develop our resources and leave this kind of stuff out. And at the end of the day, this this definitely does not go far enough. And, you know, he made the comment about the three Ps being the path to the future. And, you know, he talked about the success. He left out the fact that there was thousands of defects in Gander, thousands of defects in Cornerbrook. The fact that the mental health facility is $43 million over budget. It, it Not over budget, but it was a $43 million higher bidder. And talked about things like sometimes the higher bid is the best bid because it's cheaper in the long run. Well, with this 3P model, the people that are doing it, they are responsible for maintenance. So it's not a cheaper option. If it costs more, it simply costs more. And it blows me away that a minister of the Crown would get on the radio and say something like that. And the whole idea of it being successful, they don't have data on how successful it's going to be. Do I think that we need to explore 3Ps and possibly use them going forward? Absolutely. But the success of these projects will be measured further down the road. We don't have any data telling us how successful these are. Yeah, we can look at how P3s have worked elsewhere, and it's a mixed bag. Yeah. You know, in some circumstances, it has been a dreadful approach and has blown up in everybody's face. In other cases, you know, there will indeed be the concept of uh, short-term relief, maybe some additional long-term pain. Then you have to factor in profit, which is not a bad word, but it is a, it is part of the conversation. I did, when you talk about deficiencies, so, and we've had this discussion with government officials many, many times, whether it be with the two long-term care facilities and central 260-bed units, whether it be with Cornerbrook Hospital and up and down the line. I've gone to industry and got some data about deficiencies identified, whether it be in the rough-in inspection and or final inspections. And believe it or not, there's not a huge variance in the P3 world versus general construction. And I'm not talking about building homes. I'm talking about building major facilities. So the deficiency issue is real. The problem there, I, uh, I would imagine, is the frequency and the intensity of the inspection process. Because I know what happens in the private sector when they're building for their own, satisfy their own contract. And it certainly has happened repeatedly here in the P3 model, maybe a little bit more than it has in the other structure of building infrastructure. But across the board, it's a concern. And I don't know why anybody would entertain, especially a big contractor, why there wouldn't be the type of frequency of inspections to avoid these issues at the end because time is money. And to replace or repair anything that has been deemed inefficient and or ineffective, then it costs more money to fix it, uh, time and labor and everything with it. So I think we have an inspection issue. How about you? 
There's no question there's an inspection issue and things should be done correctly as they're being done. A government has a responsibility to hold contractors accountable, certainly when it comes to any government project or anything that has to do with our natural resources. But they also have a responsibility to employ Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Uh, you know, one of the things government talks about on a regular basis is our population growth and, and you know, Patty, it's not a secret that population is the key to our future. If we don't find a way to grow our population and sustain it, uh, from an income standpoint, revenue from a taxation standpoint, we're going to have big troubles. We're now currently, if you look at government jobs, if you look inside of government when we're doing any kind of bid process, there's very little there for apprentices. We have every day my office, and I'm sure the other 39 offices across provinces for MHAs, get calls from uh, apprentices that can't get work. This procurement strategy that they just put out has no mention of apprentices getting work uh, and at the end of the day we need to start doing that we look at the issues in st john's like housing as an example so we got a housing issue uh, newfoundland labrador housing doesn't have the staff to accommodate that stuff why isn't this government you know working with colleges and saying hey you've got apprentices you've got carpenter carpentry apprentices electrical apprentices we'd like to employ them we'd like to put them out getting these houses ready all the deficiencies in these houses we can look at and and Patty, there's campuses right across the province, and I'm willing to bet that if they were to go to the building trades, who also have uh, apprenticeship programs, they'd be more than willing to entertain something like this. So just before we go too far down that road, are you suggesting that the province, through Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, hire more tradespeople so we can avoid the number of units that are shuttered? What I'm saying is we need to get these units unshuttered and get people in the houses instead of hotels. We yeah, so by using them as contractors or hiring them on staff so they have routine maintenance being applied. And maybe uh, in addition to that, if I'm doing routine maintenance, I'm also doing quasi-routine inspections. Yeah, so, so I guess from an inspection standpoint, a work standpoint, I'm talking about utilizing the schools. The schools are already government facilities. Students are being paid to go there, and we're paying money. As a part of that package, they have to do a certain amount of work inside the schools. So I don't know if the answer is to hire them. Uh, they certainly should entertain it if, it if it helps, but at the end of the day, there are time periods in schools where students need to learn and do this type of work, and that gives us an opportunity to utilize that. we got a trades issue uh, right across the country. It's very, very real. So we'll talk about things like housing, between zoning regulations, time for permits, time for inspections, and uh, access to skilled trades. We've got a real problem here. So we can talk about money all we like, but unless we figure out some of the red tape issues and the skilled trades issues, you can't build without either of those in place. Before we run out of time, Lloyd, let's bounce back to your concerns with the procurement strategy. You know, some of this makes a lot of sense to me, but where do you think specifically it comes up short, I think is the word you use. Yeah, so, so I guess the very first thing for me from the shortness of it is the fact that it doesn't include employment. And any procurement strategy in this province ought to include employment. We need to employ Newfoundlanders and Labradors for, Labradorians first. We need to have them paying taxes right here in Newfoundland and Labrador. I'll give you an example. Doesn't Look, most of the procurement and the big projects have attached benefits agreements? Uh, anything comes under the Atlantic Accord, but I'll give you an example. Marathon Gold. So Marathon Gold is out there. I believe that their, their uh, package is 90%. That 90% is broke out by parcel, not entirely. So they have the ability to manipulate it. And, Patty, it's no different when, when you and I talked about the Terranova project going overseas. These companies can put these bid packages out however they like, and they can package it up in small packages or large packages. 
unless we specify that this is done per section of a package going out, unless we specify the amount of work that has to be done, and, and here's, here's the reality of it. Uh, if we're looking at uh, cleaners and, and uh, housekeeping people, all that kind of stuff versus skilled trades, then Marathon Gold is going to hire the cheapest option to make sure that's who they have working out there. They went to a company out of Western Canada for mechanical outfitting, and I can guarantee you there's Newfoundlanders and Labradorians that are going to be sitting home because of that. And it's not good enough. It really isn't. So I'll also go to, we go back to, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is, is we need to look at a way to employ people here, to get apprentice, apprenticeship programs running, and to get people to move back here and stay here and have a reason to stay here. I go to bid bonds. He discussed bid bonds. Yep. But I can tell you, I would love to know the last time the government cashed in on a bid bond. We had a piece of paving done out in central Newfoundland, and I won't name the company. The company ran into troubles. They couldn't complete the work. It was shoddy work. Government ended up paying millions of dollars more in order to complete the work. Never once did they broach the idea of cashing in on that bond. Yeah, I remember another classic example with Humber Valley Paving. <laughs> yeah, so uh, absolutely. So we, we can go on. Yeah. Then, we, then we go on to... Uh, Three Ps, you know, I mean... Before we get to that, I want to follow up just very quickly on the point you made. So, employment locally and benefits agreements, absolutely. But when we stand back and think about it, for the companies, they're only locked in conceptually. Because if they can find a way to save money and compare to whatever fine they might have to pay or whatever, how much cash they'll have to return to the government, I look at ExxonMobil. When we were talking about Hebron... Some of the benefits agreements to do work on shore here was not done. They went further afield. I can't remember if it was Korea or Texas, but they did it. And what did they do as a result? They just wrote us a check, and nobody got employed. So unless there's a way to deal with that in a legal fashion, which I don't even know if that exists or not, if they can find savings, they'll pay a fine. Well, there is a way to deal with it, Patty. They can do the work up front. You know, I mean, we, we can have that stuff worked into a contract, and, and that's, that's simple enough to do. And the other thing is, is maybe we reward people for utilizing Newfoundlanders and Labradorians first. Maybe we, maybe we find a way where it makes it beneficial for them. And part of that is, you know, no different than what they do in Quebec. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, I'm not going to Quebec to do work because it costs me too much money. And maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we need to make it attractive. We have local companies here. And it's funny what the minister said. The minister made a comment about when you asked him about address, he made a comment about, well, that is our aim. There's no timeline. So right now you can have a P.O. box here. And he, he said that. He said our long-term aim is to get to that. But we don't know what that means or where it gets us. The other thing is... Yeah, I asked them twice. Yeah, they refer to small business. So what, what defines small business? You know, Patty, I can package up, and, and you and I come from a similar background. I can package up a contract however I like. I mean, I can make these contracts so they're not biddable local. There's the problem. You know, we need to make contractors accountable, not just contractors. If government is putting out a contract, they need to, you know, these three Ps as an example. These three, these three P projects are designed for certain companies to be able to bid them and get them. And why? Because they can afford to do it and they can afford to maintain it. And we know how it works. That's part of business. But at the end of the day, there needs to be accountability built in there that ensures that they hire local people. We don't need people coming from, and Patty, there's a greater cost, right? So if I've got workers coming from New Brunswick, PEI, Nova Scotia, and they're being paid through those locations, because these these contractors have offices over there too, right? Then workers' comp isn't being paid here, taxes aren't being paid here, paychecks are leaving here, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians aren't working, and there's nobody in the world going to tell me that we don't have the sheet metal workers, the gyprock installers, the flooring people. We've got all of those people. And if we don't have those people, 
contractors can go outside. I mean, that's part of how these benefits agreements work. But when they go outside, they make an effort to hire local people. There's apprenticeship programs so local people can learn how to do this. Yeah, you might whittle away at the potential pool of bidders all the same, you know, because if I have a company big enough to do make a bid on a project in New Brunswick or Nova Scotia or this province or PER, whatever the case may be, then of course I have a workforce in place that I want to bring with me. I'm not saying that you're wrong, but one of the complexities is if I have the benefits agreement as tight as you suggest, and I don't think you're wrong, is that what, what the end result might be is we'll have the same select few companies getting every single contract because the inability for, say, a company from Nova Scotia to win a bid and to bring some of their guys, uh, in addition to hiring some of our guys to complete a project. So I, I think we'll add that in. The definition of small business, it's pretty tried and uh, tested and true about how we define the small, medium, or large enterprise. So 1 to 99 employees for a small business, 100 to 499 for a medium-sized business, and 500 plus for a large enterprise. That's generally how we accept it. That's how the lenders uh, deal with it as well. Patty, back, back to your comment with regards to, uh, you know, companies from away doing the work and all that kind of stuff. We have a large skill set in this province. We have companies that go to other provinces doing work. I mean, doing major work, working on nuclear plants and road work and all that kind of stuff. This government, the Liberal government, continually says says that three Ps are, are the way forward. And you look at the road work that they're talking about now and, and the idea of, of that coming under a 3P. I can tell you right now from my past experience and my conversation inside the Road Builders Association, we don't have a company here that's equipped to do it. It's going to take a partnership outside of this province. There's no question. So yeah. so that's fine. We look at the ambulances and, and uh, you know, air ambulance and ambulance service. We don't have a company in this province that's right now able to do it. That doesn't mean someone couldn't bid, procure the necessary uh, equipment to do it, but right now we don't. But why not reward someone local? Why not give them an opportunity to do that and employ Newfoundlanders and Labradorians? Yeah, other than Quebec, which has isolated themselves on many fronts, if we play too aggressively on the isolation issue, then we might jeopardize some companies that are here, employing people from here, doing business elsewhere. It's also just one of those complexities that has to be carefully assessed because if all of a sudden some of the bigger players here employing hundreds of people are no longer able to bid on contracts elsewhere or are just shunned, then we might have set ourselves up for some work loss on that front as well. But I get where you're going. Look, benefits agreements and hiring locals first, it just makes all the sense in the world. How you do pragmatically and responsibly are possibly two different things. Uh, last thoughts to you, Lloyd, before we take a break. Well, two last thoughts from pragmatism and, and logically our, our responsibilities to the men and women in Newfoundland and Labrador, and that should be where our allegiance lies to. One quick thing I want to bring up is uh, I was in St. John's this week for meetings, uh, and government got shut down, and uh, I got to say, uh, shameful. And so I had to move my meeting to a hotel. I still have my meeting. Uh, I met with, with the people at a hotel. We couldn't meet with them at the House of Assembly because government shut down at 12 o'clock for rain. And, uh, Patty, I grew up in Labrador, and uh, I don't know what we're coming to, and I understand the whole idea of health and safety and people not being on the roads. I get it. But we're living in a time where we're uh, pulling the trigger long before things have to happen. Uh, we're all driving safer vehicles. Most, a lot of the vehicles on the road now are all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive. And we're adults. We have the ability to make our own decision whether or not it's safe. We know how far away we live from work and all that kind of stuff. And for government to just shut down work and not understand the repercussions when it comes to business, when it comes to, you know, an individual, a man or a woman who drives in from Fairyland or somewhere on the outskirts of St. John's or drives, you know, to go to Crown Land or get their license renewed, uh, it's unbelievable these types of decisions would be made. And, and 
one question I ask is, how is it possible for a government office to operate on the Northern Peninsula or in Labrador? Yeah. They, uh, why aren't they shut down every day? Because at the end, in the winter, at the end of the day, I believe that whoever made this decision should be ashamed of themselves. I believe that the liberal government is just another failure on their behalf and a, and a knee-jerk reaction to something that – it just blows me away that we're making these decisions. It's shameful. And, and then we send people to work. We send essential uh, workers to work. The mall remains open, all of these types of things, and government of all things. This isn't the liberal government. Sadly, they think it is. Sadly, they think it's the Fury government, but it isn't. This is the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, here for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's time for Andrew Fury and the Liberals to realise that. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a difference between closing schools and closing government. I mean, we need to give parents a heads up to go collect their children, for instance, with a half day in place. But for government employees, until the weather looks like it's about to actually get bad enough where safety is going to be compromised, you could wait until, for instance, if it was going to get dirty at 2.45, then at 2.15 we say, okay, well, maybe it's time to go home now not cause make the call at seven o'clock in the morning that it's a half day i mean there's simply no need it's just a very different calculation versus how we deal with the schools just uh, one quick point on schools patty very quickly uh, the reality of the schools is that we have uh, thousands of kids that get on buses some kids in rural newfoundland are transported 50 60 kilometers it's a totally different situation and and that that i agree with i think that there has to be situation you know decisions made same day uh, but when it comes to the public service, it's shameful. And the government should be ashamed of themselves. I appreciate the time, Lloyd. Thanks for the call. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right, Lloyd Parrott, of course. He's the PC member for Terranova. Let's take a break. When we come back, Rod wants to talk about a winter festival. Graham Wood, who we chucked in with about a petition gone to the federal government. Well, actually, I don't know what the status is of the petition regarding the recreational food fishery. Tony has a response regarding CRA. And Mike wants to talk procurement. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Rod, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and it's a great show. Thanks. Patty, I'm calling about uh, uh, Cormac Winter Carnival. And uh, one of the events that they have, uh, you know, Carnival is in its 51st year. And for the last uh, 10 or 15 years, they've had an event called the Hottest Man for the Coldest Season. And past participants are guys like Neville Greeley, former councillor and mayor of Cornerbrook. Don Bradshaw, one year at NTV, actually won it. Uh, you know, it's it's a great event that helps raise uh, money uh, for Carnival to help keep it uh, operating, uh, keeping the kids day in the park going and uh, different events like that. So this year I've decided to enter. And uh, myself and Tina are going to be across the island for a part of that weekend uh, as a bit of a, a fun thing. I thought, you know, I'd, after many years of being involved in Carnival on the committees and that, I thought this would be a great time for me to have a bit of fun as well. So, you know, I, I was talking to uh, my old friend, Eddie Joyce, and uh, I challenged him. But old Chicken Legs has decided that he's, uh, you know, at the moment, he's not interested. Well, let me tell Mr. Chicken Legs this. That I'm definitely going to be there with my slippers, Speedos, Pac-Man T-shirt, and beer gut. Nobody will ever unsee that. No, no. <laughs> and is this the contest where the eventual winner one year not that long ago uh, exploded into some drunken rant? Do you remember that story? No, I don't, actually. No. I think it was at this particular event. I'll have to refresh my memory. But uh, So the summary here is that you're adding one more public challenge to Eddie Joyce? Absolutely. And, I mean, uh, you know, I spoke to him, and uh, he, you know, he just he thought that uh, 
Oh, this was beneath him, I think. No, all in good fun now. You know, Eddie and I have been friends for a long, long time. And, and the truth is, Eddie is a, you know, a, a great athlete and a, and a golden gloves, I believe. But uh, Eddie should remember that I also have a, uh, a bachelor's in uh, hockey stick and crowbar. So if he wants to bring on the golden gloves, come on, buddy. And he's probably a pretty hard ticket. Oh, have no doubt, like in your mind, all right? And and we both know how he doesn't like to speak his mind, and he does. So this is probably part of it—the fact that he's chicken too, right? That he's uh, not going to come out and say anything because you know how Eddie never speaks his mind. You know that, right? Uh, that hasn't been my experience, but I know where you're coming from. Uh, I appreciate the call, Rod. Good luck with the contest, and Eddie Joyce, you've been challenged. Listen, guys, thanks a lot so much. I really appreciate it. You know, there's a lot of local companies in Cornerbrook that uh, have supported Coleman's or these uh, Coleman's have supported Carnival, including Coleman's and, and all teens and, and all these guys uh, in Cornerbrook that have been there for uh, for the entire duration of this. And uh, it's a great community event. Tens of thousands of people get involved in this. And it's a great 10 days. Uh, and, I, and I would recommend everybody, if you can, take it in. And, 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 you know, and I hope to see Eddie uh, uh, not in his Speedos, but at least uh, show up. And Patty, once again, thanks so much, man. My pleasure. Take care, Rod. Take care, buddy. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line two. Tony, you're on the air. Line Hello? number two. Tony? Tony? Uh, are you on line number two? Whoever you are, you're on the air. Okay, this is Tony. Hey, Tony. Okay, uh, there was a lady on there a few cows ago having some uh, frustration with the CRA. Yep. She's not the only one. I'm in the same boat. And I'm just about ready to crack up over them. And this is over a three-year period. When uh, COVID, when COVID stopped, Mr. Trudeau decided I'm going to, I want to sell the taxes back. And they're going to garnish whatever you got. Uh, you know, threaten GSD, HSD, whatever income you got. I'm on disability pension. Anyways, I phoned some I guess just straight up. I said, how much money do Now, in the meantime, I'm working since I was 16 years old until I got COVID. And uh, I didn't owe the government five cents. Now, all of a sudden, after one year receiving the COVID checks, which I understand, when the first ones come out, I believe it was $2,000 every two weeks, no taxes taken out, I suppose pay tax on it. I understand that. That's not a problem. In one year, uh, own the government nothing, all of a sudden I get a bill for $4,700 for just personal income tax. When I never owned the government for cents. Now, that's based because that was based on because of my earnings was from uh, the federal government, the COVID. Okay. Three months later, excuse me, I met this now. I met this now over a year. So what monies did you get in pandemic response? Or are we just talking about the CERB? Uh, no, CERB. And there's more besides that. Okay. What the lady was saying, uh, I tell you, my personal income tax is 4600 Then I get... Uh, a letter in the mail. I, I'm on account online with my service Canada. Uh, then I get some uh, bill saying we overpaid you by five thousand dollars. I said what? Uh, so I phones him up. He says our records show that you're receiving uh, EI and serve at the same time. I said no, I wouldn't. 
Yeah, well, that's what I reckon. So, uh, can you prove that me? No. I said, well, I got to do. I had to turn around and phone Service Canada and get every record I had for that year in that period and my bank statements and compare it and put it all together and make up a nasty letter to send it to Revenue Canada and say, stop this. Now, they have stopped. They're not charging me no more interest. I'm going to because I don't know until this is settled. But I can understand that lady's frustration. You know? I and think it's... This day, I got, I got, I got an email yesterday from a new Canada saying that, just remind me, that I owe them $5,000 uh, for overpayment. I phoned them up. I said... My goodness gracious, I was talking to you guys three months ago. Uh, all this is supposed to be put on hold. You got a letter from me. I was talking to a lady. She says, on a review, can't any of you people, which they don't, they don't communicate between the CERT, and then what's kind of recovery benefit, and then your personal income tax. Whatever is wrong with that freaking government, they don't talk to one another. You know, they don't pass no information line. So did you set aside any of the money you received because it was all taxable income and no taxes were taken out of it? Oh, no, I understand that. Uh, yes. But my beef for Patty is that uh, I never owed him five cents. And and I guess uh, when I was receiving CERB, I understand that you got to pay taxes on it. And so I'm, I agree to that. That's fine, Dandy. But then when they turn around and tell me that we overpaid you about $5,000 on CERB because you were receiving income from EI and CERB at the same time, and I said, no, I wouldn't. I had to prove it myself. I had to get all the documents because they wouldn't tell me. And Montrenay, I had to do it myself. Yeah, and they had the information right in front of them, which is frustrating to know that they've got it and they're making you do it. So just very quickly, before before I have to go. CRA says they don't uh, talk to Service Canada. Yeah, well. Holy jumps, well, how do you know if I owe you money? How do you know if I'm getting money from Service Canada? Yeah. If you don't communicate. So uh, is this settled? No, no. And that's what blows me away. It's up to yesterday. As a matter of fact, yesterday, in my email from CRA, I guess a, a letter saying that I owe them $5,000 overpayment from CERN. Right. I told uh, you, people, you told me that part. I told them because this is blowing my mind. And uh, it says, do you understand that I sent you a letter? Listen, this. I sent them a letter May the 24th, okay? Okay, I've, I've got to go. So if you can let me know when this gets settled, because if they're reevaluating it and at the same time continuing to send you letters, that's the problem with the automated issue that they have. It'll something be just red flagged digitally, a letter will be produced and mailed out, even if someone else in that department knows exactly that they're reevaluating the claim that they put out initially, you're going to get these automated letters until they figure it out. Yeah, 
I got no problem with that. But I'll I'll I like for them to communicate between the different departments. Yeah. You know, you got your personal tax to serve, and then there's another one after that. He says I got overpaid a thousand dollars on the kind of recovery benefit CRD. You know. Okay. I got all this being reviewed. But you shouldn't still be sending me stuff. Yeah, that's just because it's automated. It's frustrating and maybe adds a bit more unnecessary fear to the conversation. But it's exactly that. There will be a file opened and it'll come a certain date and it hasn't been resolved. They automatically generate a letter, goes in the mail. No human being has seen it other than having it stuffed in an envelope the end. So that's another considerable problem. Tony, i got to get to the break, but uh, hopefully this works out on your behalf. Let me know. Yeah, uh, the only thing I, I will I'll let you go to a second. I'm, my only frustration is, look, is why is it on my behalf? Why is it me? I got to prove me innocence. Yes, I know. So Which, that's all I want to say. Okay, you take care. Good luck with it. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. Uh, Graham Woodard next. Talk about the recreational food fishery petition. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number six. Good morning, Graham Wood. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad at all. How about you? Good, good. It's a beautiful day here in Cornerbrook. You're lucky. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to kind of update uh, the public on the petition, the uh, the recreational food fishery petition that we started uh, a little over a week ago now. And uh, as of this morning, we're up to over 1,200 signatures. This is a great start. We've got till the end of February, uh, February 28th or 29th of the leap year this year. So we have to the end of February to finish the 30-day uh, petition period. So uh, I know I've had a lot of questions uh, regarding uh, where to go for the petition to sign the petition, and it's at uh, ourcommons.ca, www.ourcommons.ca. And if you do uh, keyword searches, you can wish to do that. Uh, the words are like cod or fisheries and uh, and fishers or hunting and sport fishing. But the actual petition is E4781 uh, that uh, we've asked the uh, government of Canada to uh, allow the recreational food fishery to be open from the 1st of July to the 1st of October and allow regular five fish per day and uh, and uh, for tourism operators to be able to operate uh, every day of the week and they can retain two fish per tourist per day. Hello? I'm listening. Okay, no, I didn't know if I got cut off or whatever. Yep. Yeah, so um, we've been, uh, we've garnered a lot of support from hunting fishing organizations around the province, both uh, Labrador and on uh, the island. And uh, we're hoping that uh, we can reach that 5,000 ceiling that we'd like to be able to have for Clifford uh, Small uh, to present in the House of Commons. So, uh, like I said, we're really pleased with the progress so far. Well, good stuff. Can you re- refresh my memory, though, very quickly? How many signatures do you have, or signatures do you have at this point? We have over twelve hundred right now in in a week. So that's uh, a really good start. It is. We're calling on the general public to uh, to get involved and uh, and speak up and and uh, you know say that we you know we want to be able to retain those fish uh, seven days a week or every day from the first of July to the first of uh, of October. And uh, that would allow flexibility for people to be able to plan their holidays. Uh, we're asking the minister also to uh, to release the uh, the dates for the fishery on May the first, rather than what they've been doing for the last uh, number of years. Late in June, we're 
people uh, people are unable to make plans or planning to maybe come home from away to uh, to partake in uh, in our family events and also the fishery. Refresh my memory, Graham. Is there a basic number you have to hit before these kinds of petitions get tabled? No, there's no no basic number. My understanding, uh, at least in talking uh, to some people, that uh, you know, five hundred thousand. You know, our goal was to get five thousand if we could, but we'll see how it goes. And we still got uh, three weeks left to to be able to try to get those numbers up. But in the last in the last day alone, it's jumped from seven hundred to uh, over twelve hundred this morning. And give me the number on the petition once again, so I can jot it down. It's E4781. 4781, okay. And, uh, yeah, if you go in and search that when you're going to, I know I've had a couple of older people send messages to me and say they're having trouble getting in there and not really computer literate, but you really don't need that much literacy for it. If you, if you go into ourcommons.ca and if you type in search E4781, it'll come up, or even some of the keywords like I just mentioned. Yeah. So call them on the people and organizations and then also communicate with your MHA and your MPs about, uh, you know, about this petition and, uh, and that you support it and you want to see a lot for us to have some flexibility in being able to get, uh, to get our fish, uh, you know, not just on Saturday, Sunday and Monday. Yeah, because you're right. When you go to ourcommons.ca, it is not a hard one to uh, to uh, navigate at all. So don't hesitate to go in and do that. And as mentioned, if there's something that you want to add support to, whether it be through Clifford Small's office on this particular front, because he's the MP that's going to be willing to take it on, then yeah, you know, it's never a bad idea to put pressure on your politicians for issues that are important to you. So folks, if you're looking to support this particular uh, petition, E. 4781 you simply go to our and there's lots of little search tools there it should make it pretty fundamental yeah it is and i know that there are a couple of older people who contact me said they didn't have email address but you got to have an email address so that's one of the things that you leave for because they usually send a message back to you that you signed the petition you know so. yeah and i mean setting up a gmail account just for that sake is very very easy as well yeah, and I've tried to explain to some people, but you know, uh, I've had a number of people call me and say, I can't get in, I can't get in. <laughs> I'm not computer illiterate, and my son got a computer, but I don't have an email address and all that stuff. I still want to be able to have my say, you know? So anyway, they're all, you're going to get those anyway, but hopefully they'll work it out when they talk to their family members and stuff. I appreciate the time, Graham. Good luck with us. Keep us in the loop. Thank you very much. All the best. Man. You too. Bye-bye. All right, it is time for the 11 o'clock news. Uh, I guess we'll kick off the next hour talk about procurement. Don't go away. You're listening to a rebroadcast of VOCM Open Line. Have your say by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And listen live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line three. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Patty, I've listened to John Abbott here lately and talking about tendering and that and all the rest of it. But I've been fighting this tendering act and that and stuff now for more years than I care to remember. And what I got out of the chief procurement officer was that there are no laws, rules, or regulations under this act. It is only guidelines. And from all that I can gather from it is that there's no enforcement, 
and there are no penalties of breaking these guidelines or whatever it is that you might have it. So what we've got here under the Tenure Act, as far as I'm concerned, is garbage and is not being followed by numerous departments in government. And uh, <clears throat> I'd like to give a, an indication here now. Like, here's a slice of bread into the uh, cafeteria service, say, in the health sciences. That slice of bread is ordered by a contracted company, a a contract employee, that is 10 times what it would cost a government employee. They're then buying from a big distributor worth uh, $45 billion to supply this for that company. That company is bringing this slice of bread in from the mainland somewhere. I don't know where, but when you come to look at it, the truck in the slice of bread uh, from Ed the province, you're talking about the greenhouse gases, the trucks, the wear and tear on the highway. You calculate it all out. It's at a tremendous cost to this province and to the people. Whereas, why can't we have a bakery here that is supplying fresh-baked bread and bakery products and that and stuff directly to the hospitals, institutions, homes, and whatever. Because we don't splinter out contracts like that, though, do we? We don't have a contract that says you supply the juice, you supply the milk, you supply the bread, you supply the butter. It's a catch-all, isn't it? Uh, well, that's, that, that's the thing. That's where that is never going to work. Our, our tendering laws, everything in Newfoundland, other than it's all changed and whatever is no protection here for local suppliers and that's the problem that we got they're going to one big company worth billions of dollars that we're helping to give them more billions instead of keeping the money here into this province so here you got here's a prime example of two huge companies worth billions of dollars that we're supporting but we're not supporting the local like i'm saying there that uh, yes, you know, it makes it easy for the government workers. It makes it easier for the executives of Eastern Health not to have to deal with all of these different uh, contractors and that and stuff, supplying bread, uh, supplying vegetables, and all this stuff. But if we're going to support local businesses, we got to. So we've got to have, right now, our big problem, as I see it, is that we don't have the people in the management in Newfoundland to properly do it and organize it to get it that to support our local economy. Well, there is a program. There's a program in place right now where they're trying to get locally produced vegetables in particular into long-term care facilities and the hospitals. I don't know what the status of that is. We can check with Food First. Guys, that's something that they've been actively working on. Yeah, I know that's on the go. But like I said, they're not going to do uh, get anywhere with it at the way the tendering is right now and the way that... Eastern Health are operating uh, these these things. What Eastern Health wants, uh, the executives and whatever, they want to call up one company. Uh, here we got one company to take care of all of this. We're going to combine all these contracts into one big contract. And, you know, this is where it's going to be detrimental to the economy and to democracy. Uh, we're under a democracy. Tendering is the basis. It's the ground of Based for all of our economies, uh, this is it. It's it's tender, and if this is not done, they're there now that we're going to give it all to one company, a worldwide company, uh, 
uh, what happens if something happens to that company? Uh, which, you know, worldwide, a big company could go under pretty quick. So we're putting all of our eggs in one basket. we got nothing being produced here. And we're always depending on all this stuff to come into our our, uh, our province. Everything is coming in. The turkeys, the chicken, the, you, know, you name it, and the slices of bread. It's all coming into this province. And what are we getting? We're getting the slice of bread with all kinds of additives and everything into it to keep it fresh. And we're practicing good food practices and all the rest of it. And, like, the, the whole total concept of what's going on here now in our con- in our economy with the tendering process. And here you got the ministers talking about mouths one way, oh, we want to support the local economy and all the rest of it. But then they're going the other way and supporting these big businesses to come in to take our money. So we can't have it both ways. It's got to go one way or the other. Of we're either going to support the local businesses, keep money in Newfoundland, or we're going to give it out to the big companies, let them come in, take our money, and we'll take whatever we can get. So where we got no leadership, we got nobody here that is, is thinking, as far as I'm concerned, of the overall economy of this province to do anything. And the ministers here now, as far as I'm concerned, like I said, they're they're, they're spitting their words from one corner of the mouth. And then the next time they're spitting it out, the other corner of the mouth. And it's time for them to do something. And these tendering laws, oh, instead of getting on the air and that and everything else, what John Evans is doing, he should be there drafting legislation to make the tendering laws, uh, to, well, make it as laws with enforcement and with penalties. Because right now, the laws, or what we got here, is doing nothing for our economy, only destroying it. So that's my spiel for today. And I appreciate you making time, Mike. Thanks for the call. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You know, is it... So I heard what Mike has said, and I've spoken to Mike on this issue many times in the past. You know, does it make more sense for government to have... 100 contracts in the world of food service versus one so that we can indeed see more local business do uh, have operations and contractual obligations and employment opportunity and revenue for smaller, medium-sized businesses that are here as part of the contribution that this one big multinational, multi-billion dollar company makes. I don't know. What do you think? Let's uh, keep going here. Let's go to line number one. Owen, you're on the air. Good morning, Owen. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, calling about the redfish corn Gulf St. Lawrence and uh, an historic rights as far as I'm concerned about uh, Burjo's attachment to it. Okay. Yeah, but first of all, I'd like to uh, say to Greg Pretty, the FFAW, and uh, Minister Loveless, um, keep up the fight. I mean, Newfoundland got 19% of the, of the quota out there. Nova Scotia is getting 33 and Quebec's getting 32 It'll be a tough fight for them. It always has been for Newfoundland to uh, get a fair share of anything, in my opinion. And uh, so I wish them the best of luck. Um, Burjo is going to try and is already in the process. We've sent off letters to the uh, Minister of Fisheries, DFO, and that kind of thing. But uh, we we were involved with the redfish uh, quarter in the Gulf in, ever since the 1950s, 1954, I think we... Uh, we sent charters, the late group did, sent charters to, to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Um, it, it was um, over the years, it, it, you know, I mean, that's been one of the main 
face that uh, went into our face plan here. So we're uh, we're involved with it. We we think we got the historic attachment. Uh, we're adjacent to it and just around the corner in the Gulf. So um, yeah, um, good luck to them and. Uh, and I, I think uh, we deserve to be in the fishery. Uh, as a tiny town, we're struggling here in Virgil. We, we've basically had nothing here since uh, uh, the plant closed in '92, and when uh, the Barry Group took the quarters to cancel Nova Scotia, and they inspired the problem. I think the redfish that we had at that point moved to Nova Scotia and it's probably right now uh, Nova Scotia is claiming that part of the ridfish that, that we had for quite a long time. Owen, maybe move a little closer to the receiver so I can hear you a little bit more clearly and for the listener. Look, I think you're right. You know, and boy, Jerry Byrne, he certainly went off on TFO based on this decision-making. You know, whether it be a percentage issue, but the problem as described by Minister Byrne, and I don't think he's wrong either, is we've actually seen the allocation go to places and people and entities that aren't prepared to execute it. They're going to have to actually put money in to build the boats and build the plants to accommodate their percentage of the total allowable catch. It makes no sense. If we've got people already in, in the industry to be able to accommodate it, we don't even know exactly what the total allowable catch will be at this moment. The thought is it'll be 25,000 tons. There's plenty of folks already fishing in the Gulf that have got the boats and the pro- processing capacity on shore to take that up without adding anybody else to the conversation. None. Now, the minister federally, Diane Leboutier, she defends her decision saying that things like, well, the offshore fleet, and we're not even sure what she means by offshore. We, are we talking about a hunter footer or are we talking about a factory freezer trawler? Historically, the offshore fleet had 74% and now it's down to 58%. But that doesn't change the water on the beans. I mean, 19% here of 25,000 is barely going to be enough to cover fuel, let alone any profit. So there's a problem with how this has been distributed. I mean, in Nova Scotia, not happy either. No, I, you know, I am... It's, it's hard to believe that, that Newfoundland, for all time, has always been, you know, they've always got the short end of the stick. They, they really have. I, I've been to Ottawa. I've been there, uh, you know, me and the mayor and deputy mayor went there uh, in 93, I think it was. I mean, we didn't have any impact in Ottawa. We're, we got seven representatives. You know, Delaware was, was the minister of fisheries at the time. You know, we sent out a document that he didn't even bring in the room. He didn't know how many people worked in this plant here. You know, he talked about, you know, all we should be able to do is something with 60 or 70 people. Uh, I said, well, now, excuse me, but the document that we sent you talked about 500 people. You know, so, I mean, like, you, you got no chance. You know, it's so hard. It's so hard to to, to uh, see this stuff happening. 19% of it. For Newfoundland, like we're surrounded by water, we fish. That's what we do. You know, I mean, I know there's other things, but uh, that's been our history. And and then you look at Nova Scotia, 33%. Quebec, of course, gets 32%. You know, it, it, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and like I said, we've been fishing that. Uh, we were first one. As far as I know, we were first ones in. We were one of the first. Uh, I think Ramia and Godos also sent the uh, trawlers to it in Gulf. And we were the last ones out, by the way. We, when when the trawlers were pulled out of the Gulf in, I think it was the late 80s, that the, the Berger trawlers were allowed to stay because we had historic rights there. But now um, the, the, the province, you know, it's only getting 19%, so it's a, it's a tough battle. 
Absolutely. I guess it's not going to make a big load of difference if we're talking about an already uh, accrued percentage at 19. Supposing it's 35,000 tons and we get 19% of it. The math that I've seen people do, including the folks at the FFAW and a couple of harvesters that have reached out to me directly who are down on the south coast with a shrimp license that they want to get rid of, and of course it's not worth much now, they want to be bought out, they say they're not going to be able to make a go of it with that percentage. Just simply the math does not work. If we're talking about the cost of operations, period. So I think the minister's thoughts are probably right on point. We're actually expanding capacity to do exactly what we did to, to where we found ourselves with the redfish back in 1976. Too many people going at it, and consequently, it might be a strong spawning biomass at 4 million tons today, but that doesn't last forever if we overfish it. So adding more people to the equation, reducing our percentage of the catch, seems like terrible decision-making. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, so yeah, I just wanted to put that out there, and like I say, for Greg Brady and uh, Minister Loveless, give her. Do the best you can. Yeah, we'll see where it lands. I don't know if the story is fully told at this point, but oh, we'll keep chasing it. Yes, that's right. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you, sir. Take yeah. good care. Bye-bye. Yeah. You too. Yeah, I mean, if there are enough boats and enough plant capa- processing plant capacity already in place in Nova Scotia, PEI, Quebec, and in this province to execute 25,000 tons of redfish, you know, there will be arguments made on a variety of sides as to why there's been others included. Some of this concept of adjacency, except that we don't apply that across the board fairly or equitably or equitably, pardon me, and other species. So I can't for the life of me understand how they arrived at this particular equation. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to speak uh, with Greg Smith. He's one of the board four candidates. And Cecil also wants to pick up where Owen left off regarding redfish. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Greg Smith, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How's it going? Doing okay. How about you? Doing well. Um, We're in the midst of the Ward 4 campaign. Uh, The campaign trail is going well. Uh, Hitting the ground running, and we're hopefully by the end of next week, we'll uh, have knocked doors throughout the entire ward, which is is huge. And tomorrow, uh, I'll be signing my nomination to be an official candidate and to be on the ballot. So today, I kind of wanted to chat a little bit about snow clearing. Um, which I think this time of year is on everybody's minds, and uh, especially with what happened in Sydney, Nova Scotia, and Nova Scotia in particular. Uh, we've been a little fortunate, but uh, obviously we know we got some more storms ahead for us here. Um, you know, just some statistics really fundamentally is that we are, you know, when we face snow clearing in this city, we are Canada's second snowiest city. So we get 322 centimeters of snow every year. Um, I think the city has made some great strides, you know, in all um, in all reality. They put an extra 2.4 million into snow clearing in 2023 and 2024, um, where it comes down to equipment or additional staffing. Um, residents themselves... They can use the Where's My Plow uh, on the city website, and they can kind of see where the plows are in their neighborhood. But, uh, you know, not just an endorsement of what they're doing. Obviously, I think there's needed uh, improvements, right? Um, For myself personally, I'm a transit user. I'm a pedestrian. Um, I know, and I don't know if everyone knows this, but uh, Metrobus is more responsible than, than the city to clear uh, their stops, so making sure that we work with them to make sure um, transit riders have somewhere safe to stand while waiting for the bus. But uh, so, Greg, what specifically about snow clearing are you putting forward? Uh, yeah, so for 
specifically, I think that we need to look at certain zones uh, and maybe change the priority for them. So the city does 175 kilometers of sidewalk snow clearing a year. Like that's what they're designated to do. Uh, for me, about two weeks ago, I was walking down Newtown Road. It's somewhere I walk all the time, and it was four or five days after a snow event. Both sides of the street, they both sidewalks were not clear. So the issue that I have with that is maybe on the priority level, we need to move that up. They have um, about five different priority levels for that, but for an arterial like that where there's a ton of students, I think we need to kind of change that around a little bit. So I think that investment is necessary there um, to make sure that some arterials that might be left out in the cold for a few days. I know that five days you try to get them done. But, you know, for five days after a snow event with thousands of students, thousands of seniors that are walking on those streets, uh, I think it's super important. So, and obviously with the new school going in Camp Terrace, um, seniors in Churchill Square that want to get to and from services in the square, I think that we really need to kind of up the ante a little bit on that, not put a price on people's safety, but kind of look at where... Uh, where improvements or changes in the priority levels for certain streets are necessary. Well, I mean, when it comes to Claymont Terrace and the addition of a school there, which is an interesting provincial conversation because we don't know for how many students and or what grades, which is a strange way to go about infrastructure, but that would automatically fall into the priority, so 300 metres either side? No, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, Um, but I I look at that as a whole up there, you know, and not just the 300 metres going into the school. I mean... A um, ton and a ton of young families up there, a ton of seniors in, in Churchill Square. And, you know, I think that we need to kind of look at how do we change the level there? Do we kind of add on to the 175 kilometers? Uh, do we change priority levels? And uh, is there any increased funding that we need to kind of look into it for? But um, like I said, I think we're making strides, but I think that there's still some work to be done, uh, especially myself personally speaking about being over on Newtown Road and walking that street almost every day. So um, I think that, you know, we need to kind of change the conversation there of what streets need to be done sooner. Um, and obviously that that's kind of where I'm going with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the eventual question to be asked is, you know, it's all about the priority. It's not how much you spend. Mm-hmm. It's how much you spend in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Because with yeah. a 13% property tax increase here in the city of St. John's, adding capacity, adding service, and I know they've expanded some of the sidewalk clearing services, and that's mm-hmm. a good thing. But, for instance, I live in a school neighbor, a residential school neighborhood. Pardon me, that's not the right thing. I live in a small school neighborhood, <laughs> and I just live yeah. one street over. But there's tons of students on my street. There has never been one plow go up the, down the sidewalk on either side. Now, over on the exactly. big street where the school is, of course, because of the priority zone, mm-hmm. it gets attention. So the question would have to be is... Mm-hmm. Are people willing to pay more for more snow clearing? You know, everyone wants everything all at once. And, you know, there's a lot of petulance out there. People want what they want when they want it. But do they want to pay more? Because expansion of snow clearing absolutely comes with a bigger budget, which comes with either yeah. refocusing money from somewhere else, whether it be in salaries, which, like, for instance, that's Tom Davis, one of your uh, one of your opponents. That's one of his yeah. big issues. Then, you know, Miles yeah. Russell, who's also on the, on the, uh, on the ballot, talking about, yeah. you know, traffic flow, and that would include snow clearing and ice management and what have you. So the question mm-hmm. people are going to have to ask themselves is, am I willing to pay more? 
well, you know, and, and, and that's a, a reality of it. Or the other option is, like I said, we kind of look at where the priorities are. So if one area, let's say, uh, one of the priority areas is to have both sides of the streets done there, maybe, you know, do you change that and make sure that one side of the street on both streets are done? Uh, so that's just allocating over. That doesn't really cost anything more. Um but, you know, I, I think that that is certainly a key question. Um, fundamentally, I know I've talked before about some areas where I think that the city could get, get more money, reducing the subsidy, the business realty tax allowance. Those are some key areas that I think that we need to look at in the future um, with trying to make sure that we balance the budget better without going into the uh, pockets of the residents. But fundamentally, I think that you can't really put a price on safety. So we can we can talk it through and see if there is any other alternatives. But I think fundamentally, people being able to be safe in their communities, out walking to and from school services, et cetera, I think that that is so key for a city that values active transportation transportation and people that just want to age in place fundamentally. So those are really key for me, obviously, uh, having people that want to, you know, not have to drive. They can walk to the convenience store. They can walk to Churchill Square. They can walk to Kelsey Drive if they so wish. But if they have the option to, it needs to be safe and reliable for them to do so. Uh, Greg, I appreciate the time. Good luck on the trail. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's Greg Smith, one of the candidates uh, running in the by-election award for, of course, Councillor Ian Froud has stepped away. So it'll be Greg Smith, Tom Davis, and Miles Russell. Let's take a break. Cecil, you're up next to talk about the redfish. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Cecil, you're on the air. Hey. Yes, sir. Excuse me. How are you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Good. Uh, Redfish quota. Uh, I mean, that's outrageous. I agree with Jerry Byrne. He made a very strong statement. And I think all the political parties in Newfoundland should should form a committee and see if they can change this. I mean, we can't let them steal our our redfish. What is it, 60% uh, the quota is? I'm sorry, say that again. What number did you just use? Did, did they say the quarter was 60% and we're only getting 10? No, we're getting 19 of the total. So the numbers have been confusing right from the get-go. Initially, the people were saying 25 and then it was 10, but 19 seems to be the most recent reported number. And I haven't heard anyone say that that is not accurate, but we don't know exactly what 19% of what is quite yet. People are pretty sure it's going to be an initial quota in the first year of 25,000 tons. And 19 just does not add up to making it uh, a real profitable species for harvesters in this province. They've done the math. They know how much it costs to operate their vessels. And they've told me in no uncertain terms that 19% of 25,000 is not really going to cover fuel, let alone any profit. So uh, what are we doing about it here in Newfoundland? Are, are the, is the premier getting involved and the opposition parties and the MPs and all the rest, we should all come together on this. Well, of course we should. Now, I would think that based on the comments coming directly from Minister Byrne, that the government has spoken quite loudly, and he pulled zero punches in his commentary on this program. Whether or not that's going to make a row of beans difference, I have no earthly idea. I haven't heard one peep from any of our members of Parliament. I'm sure Clifford Small, as a member of the opposition, is frustrated with this number. I haven't heard anything from the Liberal members uh, on the government side, all the same. Yeah, that's outrageous. And they're building, uh, 
spending uh, 50, uh, $50 billion on uh, factory freezer, freezer trawlers, is that right? Yeah, I mean, that that's the crux of Minister Burns' concerns, is that we're actually adding capacity that's not currently in place to execute or to prosecute this fishery, when that yeah. doesn't make any sense. If there's enough in the way of vessels that fish the Gulf, processing plants on shore to process the redfish, why would there be any need to add, add anyone else to the conversation? Now, there's okay. going to be individual groups like, uh, for instance, uh, indigenous groups that get a piece to the pie here, they'll make their argument that they deserve it based on adjacency and what have you, but adding capacity to maybe replicate what led us to the uh, redfish being shut down back in the 70s, then that just sounds like a bad idea no matter how you slice it. That's right. And, and the uh, the redfish and the uh, inshore fishery and the recreational fishery, seems like to me Ottawa don't want us taking fish out of the water. At least that Mr. Fisheries, I think she made a statement to that effect, didn't she? Well, that was the former fisheries minister, not the current one, talking about, you know, the erring on the side of caution, the precautionary principle. So I don't know, you know, whether or not that's part of the current fisheries minister's thought process on it, but that was the former one. Her name escapes me at the moment, but it's not Diane Leboutier, who was currently the federal minister. It's right now. Uh, a lady named Diane Leboutier. It looks like to me she don't know too much about fish. I don't think many f- uh, fisheries ministers federally have known much about fish to begin with. <laughs> That's right. Really? You know? How come Ottawa got so much control over our fishery? Uh, good question. So, you know, we'll be told that we have custodial management and or joint management, but of course, that's not really true. The be-all and the end-all, I mean, the province has the authority to do things like regulate the processing side, but ultimately, in the harvesting side, you know, we can talk about whatever controls the province has, which are very few. Harvesting is basically all about how much you can catch and when you can catch it. I mean, that's the real basics of it. So whether the Fisheries Act needs to be amended, amended, my thoughts are, uh, if you indeed had uh, Jason says the guiding principle, you dealt with the bycatch and you dealt with the body up system, we'd clean up a lot of the annual rackets that we have. Yeah, like uh, it seems like Ottawa got control of our fishery. They got control of our oil. I mean, this is outrageous. Uh, we should have control of our own resources. Well, I mean, we've agreed to, and we have a certain amount of control in certain areas. You know, the Atlantic Accord has given us a lot. It's a pretty important piece of, uh, it's a pretty important document that guides some of these natural resource conversations. But there's always going to be federal involvement, regardless of where we're talking about in the country, because, you know, and this precedes uh, this liberal government or anybody else. It's long been the case. Whether or not there's too much control, I would suggest there is at the federal level. But, yeah, and the minister that I was thinking of, and Dave whispered in my ear, the minister who said what you said was uh, Joyce Murray. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, sorry for my bad throat, but it uh, seems like Ottawa uh, may, may uh, they got control, but seems like they're making all the decisions from, like, the the recreational fishery. Well, they do. It's a DFO uh, issue. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're setting the terms for that. They do. I mean, uh, so, therefore, we got no control over nothing. 
And the recreational food fishery, I mean, if we're being honest, the numbers that we hear, and, you know, that's why I don't understand, number one, why we wait so long into the season before we get the announcement of the dates, and number two, why it's so restrictive. Because, the you know, the commercial harvester will say, you know, the fish really should be caught in the commercial entity, but I think there's plenty of room for us recreational fishers because if it's about 1% or less of the cod that's taken out of the water per year, it doesn't okay. seem like asking for a lot that, for that to be expanded because that's a very minimal uh, intervention by the recreational harvester. So, you know, I think some of the arguments on that front might be a little bit flimsy. Well, anyway, it's great talking to you, and I think you should be the ombudsman for Newfoundland, and you should be paid two salaries. <laughs> and one from Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah, uh, I appreciate the kind words, Cecil. Stay in touch. You're doing a great job. God bless. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, uh, we're going to try to take the break quasi on time before we squeeze calls in. So let's have a quick check in on the Twitter feed. Wherever you see him open line, follow us there. Caller talking about the comments coming from Ward 4 candidate Greg Smith. You know, I do think that is probably one of those tricky pieces of business as a politician, as a candidate, to really have your finger on the pulse that would be really attractive issues for people out there. I think if you even the starting point, no, it's not for me to tell them. They can focus in whatever they want to focus on. But I would guess for the vast majority of people living in the city of St. John's or living specifically in Ward 4, when we've been told in the last month that our property taxes are going up by 13%, how some controls can be put in place there. If you start there, I think a lot of other issues just kind of dovetail in, organically speaking. But the pocketbook, you know, and to quote the late Tim Russert, it's the economy, stupid. And I'm not calling anyone stupid. That was a phrase that he used. And inside that world, it's the economy is me and you and our ability to spend money. The economy is not the government. So that's really, I think, one of those real pressure point issues. If a candidate was knocking on my door, that's my question immediately as a resident of this city. How are you going to rein in the spending? Whether it be in salaries and or fleet management and all the things we've seen that resulted in a huge spike this year, whether it be aging uh, snow clearing uh, fleet and or ice management fleet or garbage collection fleet, at some point, it's all coming out of my pocket because, like usual, governments don't have their own money, right? It's just my money, your money. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number, oh, I already clicked six. Amir, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you, boy? I'm doing grand, sir. How about you? Yeah, good, Paddy. Good. Uh, Paddy, first of all, I, I want to thank, uh, uh, when you are When you go to vacation and uh, there is one missus who takes your place, and then Tim, I, I know Tim, uh, he's more good than politician. Man, man, man. The, the the real importance, sometimes they try to fill a shoes which is not possible because there is no other Paddy Daly. So, <laughs> I think we're all lucky there's no more of me. <laughs> no, but that Mrs. and Tim, they, I salute to them also because it's, if somebody asks me, Amir, do a show, Paddy's on vacation. Man, man, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's like it's, yeah. a, it's a two-sided appraise I want to do initially. Well, I think Linda and Tim are both great. Yeah, they are great. That's why I'm saying salute to them that they have that courage to fill in you. So secondly, Paddy, the purpose of uh, today is like awareness and little bit safety. Like uh, knowing, knowing the strength of your vehicle is so important in this icy conditions and winter and all that. Like, uh, like giving a small example that 
if I if I reach Park Avenue, which is like a two way, and uh, at the end of Park Avenue, when we cross Topsail Road, there is a Team Gushu, a new little bit highway. So, uh, like somebody behind, it's they they want. For example, they want me to do 70, 75. The reason is, the one reason is, by law, I'm doing 50, 52, 53. And second is, so many potholes that I I don't want to burst my tires and suspension. So after that, after that, when we reach the signal, and then, then Team Gushu, little bit open up, man, I know your your ears are red. You almost about to show me the finger why I'm not going fast on Park Avenue. And then when when Team Gushu opens up, man, maybe my vehicle has an independent suspension, in, independent power distribution. If my one tire is on black ice, my three tires going to get 33% each power. My traction control is a two-stage traction control, maybe, because when I switch the traction control off, my electronic stability control still stays on. What it does, like you come out early morning on a snowy patio, you you dig your feet to grab the traction, and maybe my vehicle traction control gives me that spin to grab the pavement and electronic stability control is still in. So half human control, half computer control. When I press three seconds, my electronic stability control, then 100% machine and human. So then a person behind me, best kind, you love your vehicle, but man, you, you push your foot on the throttle and then you are spinning. If I press the brake, you are gonna hit me 100%. If I accelerate, you are never gonna catch me because because my vehicle designed separately. I know the strength of my vehicle. So my request is people know the strength of their vehicles. They are, they are intelligent. Some vehicles have intelligent all-wheel drive system. Some have little bit ordinary and then braking distance and everything. Don't be mad if I'm not doing 70 on Park Avenue and the stop you did on a Tim Horton because you may be late, but you need that Tim Horton cup in your hand before you entering your workplace. Man, come out of home little early. Go to Tim Horton, then reach workplace in a safe way. So knowing the strength, some people in this icy, slushy condition, their vehicles have different strength than maybe my vehicle. So, so please don't try to catch me on Team Gushu. You will never... <laughs> but anyway, purpose is awareness, and please be safe. Everybody stay safe. You too, Amir. I appreciate the call. Thank you very much, Paddy. Have a, have a good rest of the time, and I call again. You too. I look forward to speaking with you again, Amir. Have a nice day. Okay. Uh, bye-bye, Paddy. Right. Bye. Seven bye-bye. One. Seven one. There you go. All right. <laughs> bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. <laughs> Line number four. Phil, you're on the air. Hey, yeah, no, I was just calling in. I was heading west on the Outer Ring Road, and uh, at the sign where it says about 1,100 meters to the turnoff for Team Gucci Highway, there were two cars uh, in the left-hand lane pulled over. I don't know if they rear-ended each other or what, but it's right as you go over the crest, so I just wanted to let people know because I could see 
someone coming up and not breaking quick enough and causing an accident. So describe the area one more time quickly. I'm sorry, Phil. Yeah, so if you're heading west on the Outer Ring Road uh, and you're getting towards the Team Gushu turnoff. Yep. Yeah, so if you're just heading over that crest, as you're heading downhill towards the turnoff, there's a sign that says, I think it's 1,100 meters to the turnoff, and just after that, there's two cars pulled over in the left-hand lane, not on the not on the shoulder. They're in the left-hand turn lane, or sorry, in the left-hand uh, passing lane. Fair enough. That's my route to work, so I'm familiar with that. And you're right. You crest that hill. There's a lot of blind that you don't get until your vehicle is at the absolute peak or the pinnacle of that that hill. So that's helpful advice, Phil. I appreciate the time. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I just thought I'd let you know. I appreciate it. Stay safe All out right. there, buddy. You too. Uh, right. That's a dangerous spot right there. If there's someone in the left lane and that you could be passing another vehicle, you get to the crest of that hill, you'll have very limited time to uh, put on the brakes. All right, final word this morning goes to line number two. Mark, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how's it going? Doing okay today. How about you? Good. Um, I just wanted to let folks know about our documentary screening at Bannerman Brewery tonight. It's a housing-related issue, and, you know, as a housing advocate, I, I felt like this was the next step. We got to show folks here what is what has happened elsewhere, and so this uh, this documentary is um, called "Someone Lives Here," and actually Jerry Lynn uh, uh, did an interview there with uh, Khalil Seabright, who's the star of the documentary, and he's the gentleman, the carpenter who built a bunch of small shelters for folks in Toronto who were homeless. Um, so this documentary kind of goes through that. Uh, that whole um, that whole process and how Toronto responded and how the police got involved and it's a riveting documentary. Um, we're going to talk to Khalil actually tonight. We're going to zoom in with him uh, for a little question and answer period, and uh, we've got a very informal panel that we're going to add to that uh, just to sort of uh, discuss the issues of homelessness and how these tiny shelters might. Um, you know, might be a, a good solution. And Khalil's been quite involved in Ontario and in, in Toronto um, with this, uh, these initiatives that are ongoing there. How many people can the brewery accommodate for something like this? Uh, we're looking at about 83 folks, 83 people. So we've got tickets up on Eventbrite. Uh, if you go to eventbrite.ca, and you specify that you're looking in St. John's, it should pop up for tonight. Uh, the title of the event, and you can get tickets. They're free. Uh, if you show up at the door, I'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely try to get you in. Um, it's called Documentary Screening Someone Lives Here Fundraiser for Tiny Shelters. So, we're, yeah, we're looking at about 83, folk, 83 people altogether. Tickets are free, but I assume there will be a hat being passed around. Is that how this is going to work? Oh yeah, like so. The way I organized it was, I wanted to do it on Eventbrite because there's a there's a donation option. So people have donated as much as uh, you know. I've seen uh, some some larger larger donations on there. I uh, we we put on suggested twenty dollars. Um, this is all a, as part of our GoFundMe fundraiser to bring to actually bring one of these shelters from Ontario and tour it around. Um, we've we've initiated meetings with municipalities. And we want to just sort of see what's what's needed, how this will work here. Can it can it get through some of the um, of the bylaws that exist here in the province? And uh, you know, it's a much cheaper, much better, and and a, a, you know, we can move them around. It's a, it's a, it's not a 
It's not infrastructure. It's not a hotel that we lose in three years. Um, it's something we can keep using. Uh, good luck with the event tonight, Mark. Uh, let me know how it goes. Thanks. I just want to, oh, if I if I can have one more minute, Patty. You I just want thirty seconds. I just want to remind people, like, we, there are still people at Tent City. I believe there was 12 people, people there last night. So we're still not in homelessness and John Abbott, and uh, they're just still not providing the solutions that are going to get people out of there. So we've got we've to continue to think out of, outside of the box. I appreciate the time, Mark. You've had the last word. Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Mark did indeed have the last word, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.